I'll tell you what, I don't understand how people who like, let's just say like, uh, like a Stephen Colbert or, uh, a Jimmy Kimmel or, or who have you, Ellen DeGeneres, how did the hell do they do a show every day? Cause I do one show and it, it you know, it, it, in our world, it, it's kind of a big deal. It is a beautiful theater. It's 1100 people. I feel an immense amount of pressure and then I do it and it goes off and then I feel like that's it for the month. <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't I mean, understand how these people come back and then they're like, well, tomorrow I'll do the same thing. So one thing is they've got uh, they got a big staff and that the staff helps them prepare and do some of the the strain that maybe that you and Amy have to do for this. And and I don't know, does Kafasas do anything but just sort of smile and then read the intro? Uh, you know, what I mean, like if there's anything that slips through Amy's fingers, right. he's, he's there for right. it. He's there to catch it. Uh, so part, that's part of it. I think also and I remember listening to Letterman talk about this, like it's like it's like being a long distance runner it's like, or being a runner. Um, you, you build up some some strength. Uh, you know, but if you do it every day, you get those muscles and you're like, you're able to pace yourself. That said, I also got the impression, especially from Letterman, that after even, you know, doing four days, five shows in four days, because they would they would require yeah. a fifth show. So we, they only work four days that he was kind of destroyed for the weekend, right, that that right. was part of it was was right. that. Um, and yeah. I, and the other thing I think must be and think back to like um when you were doing your college newspaper, like right. there is something you, <laughs> no pressure, John, but like if you say something dumb and Phil Schiller says something and you walk off stage at the end of the talk show live and you're like, oh, what did I do? You got to live with it for a year. And Letterman or Colbert or Jimmy right. Kimmel or whoever, they have a bad show. Guess what? There's another show tomorrow. It's like a baseball player, right? There's like there's so many games. You, you have a bad game, just there's another game tomorrow. Just you, and, and I think that there's some truth in that too. That it's all ma- the whole year is magnified on that one yeah. show. No pressure. Forget what forget <laughs> what I said now in a year. Yeah. Exactly. So. I had that too. You know, I had the, I've had two podcast interviews with Apple employees set up by Apple PR in the last three months, and it and it's definitely like, um, on one level, I interview people all the time, and on another level, it's like, boy, like they're taking a chance. I'm taking a chance. I better not screw this up. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's true. And then you're kind of destroyed afterward, where it's just like, oh my god, I don't. And hard to tell whether you did a good job or not, honestly, because if I think you and I are similar in this way, you're so self-critical that you're always yeah. thinking like, I could have done this differently. Why did that go that way? I didn't expect this. And you completely lose perspective. So when people say it was a great show, you just have to say thank you, because I don't know, could be. This was the first time, uh, I, and I I forget how many years I've been doing it. There was the one with Cable Sasser at, at 111 Minna. Were you there for that one? Yeah. First yeah. ever live talk show. That was, and then, uh, and then I, I think I had the ATP guys on at, right. uh, at uh, Mezzanine. Right. And then the third year was Schiller. And which is crazy to me, I think, right? Unless I'm missing something that already by the third year of the live talk show was the famous, uh, I shit you not, <laughs> Phil yeah. Schiller right. introduction, which was amazing. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And then next year was Schiller and Federighi. Uh, uh, I'm going to draw a blank here. Maybe it was Schiller and Federighi three years in a row. I don't no, know. didn't didn't you have like Jaws at one point in there? Well, Jaws was last year. Jaws and Mike Rockwell were last year. Were I last think, year. But, right. but Schiller and Federighi made a comeback together mm. at the first year at, at San Jose at the California Theater. Yeah, that that sounds right. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
Which but, is funny. Every time you mention the California theater, you mention those Apple events, and I remember those so well. The uh, <laughs> the one, the last one with Scott Forstall, where he was around but not on stage because he was yeah. he he was being fired in the he process. He was a of week away fired. from being fired. And apparently... I remember that. I saw him. He was he was talking to Doctor Wave uh, from Pixar <laughs> out in the hallway, and and literally the whole conversation as I walked by was, "Did you see Prometheus? Yes, it sucked. Yes." <laughs> And then I, I was just like, okay, that was a weird. And then Forcebot was gone after that. Like, he's, he's out of there. And the iPod photo was in that theater too. I remember with you too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a, that's a great venue. Like, it was good enough for Steve Jobs. It's good enough for the talk show. It's amazing. And then I, I like the in the work up to the show. I'm like, why do I ever do this? This is the last year I'm ever doing this. I'm never doing this <laughs> yeah. again. I don't care how popular yep. this is. I don't care. I'm just going to It's not bag. worth it. <laughs> then I do the show and it comes off okay and I go backstage and it seemed like I was like, this year I really felt like, hey, that might have been the best one I ever did. I might have been the most comfortable. It might have mm-hmm. been the funniest. And I'm like, why don't I do this all the time? <laughs> I should do. I should come out here once a month and do one of these. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, even even though it's only once a year, I do think that anything you repeat, you get better, ideally. And you have definitely gotten better. Not that, to say you were bad before, but I, I do think you're less visibly nervous than you so were at true. the beginning. It, it yeah. feels that way. It absolutely feels that way. And I don't, you know, again, I think what you should do is, you know, do it like 52 times a year or something like that. And then yeah. you get really good um, doing it once a year probably isn't the best way to build up muscle memory. But yet somehow it feels like I have. I, uh-huh. I do feel that way. Um, yeah, I know. I think there's some shorthand there where you're realizing like, oh, I already, you know, you process it and like, this is how yeah. I do this part of it. And then you just put that to the side and it lets you focus on the rest and get a little bit better. Yeah. I had a, I got an email the other week from somebody who said, I love these people. They're the best. These are all like the disciples of John Syracuse. They're like, hey, I finally uh, found the incomparable. And uh, so I started listening from the first episode. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> there's 460 plus episodes of this show. It's been on since 2010. <laughs> What are you it's like doing? A thousand hours, a thousand but, hours of audio. <laughs> but what the email said was was, and I've listened to the whole thing. Okay, amazing. You've gotten a lot better as a host since 2010. And my response was, thank you. I can't believe you listened to all those episodes. That really wasn't necessary. And I would hope that after a thousand hours of hosting a podcast, I would at least get a little bit better. Right? You would <laughs> like. There's something really wrong. You should give up if you're not appreciably better at anything. After you've been doing it every week for 10 years, right? Like that's we as human beings, we should get better at things as we do them. I you we would hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't always happen, but yeah, try something else. Maybe we we tweaked a few things at my live show this year. I don't know what was obvious. I mean, you've been to them, right? I've been to all of them. All of them. So. we tweaked a couple of things this year, which in the, in the theater and the big one was we moved forward on the stage. So at the California theater, it, this, it, I don't know how much shows up on video. It's like when you're there, you can see it and it's very palpable is that they have what they call an orchestra area right at the front of the stage and they can raise and lower that part of the stage. And in years past, we've kept it lower and done our staging on the main stage behind that. And then this year, um, it wasn't a conflict, it, but it was just a little bit of a back and forth negotiation. The day after my show, the San Francisco 49ers were holding something right. there. I don't know if, if, if that, how, how, if like people saw like 49ers in the area Wednesday or not, but, but they were holding a big event there. I don't even know what it was. 
Uh, yeah, it's some. It, I think involving their spring practices, and I don't know whether it was a team thing or a charity thing, but there was yeah. like they were they were around. It was like yeah. when they fly the players in a couple months before uh, their training camp. So yeah, yeah, they were around. So they uh, there was some talk like two months before my show of, Hey, the 49ers or (laughs) at first they just said a client, uh, there's another client who has an event (laughs) the day after you. And they would like to do some setup, uh, the day before your day, you know, how long, you know, what hours do you need the theater? What can they do? And, and maybe you might have to keep the curtains closed, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just like, at first I was like, F you, you know what I mean? Like I'm, (laughs) I'm paying rack rate for this theater for the day. I'm going to do whatever I want. But then I, you know, I had, you know, I listened and I had an open mind and I thought, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, if we close the curtains and moved forward, wouldn't that be a little bit more intimate? Wouldn't that, Mm -hmm. why why haven't we done this for, ever since we've been there and then like i started looking at like um like when stand-up comedians play there and i'm not saying that my show is a stand-up comedy show but it's closer you know in terms of what type of event it is it's people with microphones trying to be entertaining and informative right you know with an intimacy with the crowd it's like why aren't we closer and they were like oh yeah every time a stand-up comedian plays here they they raise the orchestra and play at the front of the stage and i'm like why haven't i been doing that for two years i think this actually isn't even like a concession to the people you know the 49ers having the event the day after this actually seems like a better way to stage this we should be closer and then the other change we made is we kept the house lights up a little bit higher this year Mm -hmm. in years past our perspective, me and my guests on the stage, is pretty much the audience is just black, just a complete blackout. And so yeah, we just, raised the just lights. Sound, <laughs> no we visuals. Raised, we raised the lights a little bit this year, and I don't know what you thought from the audience, but from the stage, it made a huge difference. But I, I specifically remember seeing you. I, it was like a hand. It, it was maybe the only thing that almost threw me off was that I was like, "Hey, there's John Syracuse." <laughs> Yep. Taking pictures in the front row. <laughs> right. And I almost like every time I'd see like a friend, I and, and I, you know, had all these tickets in reserve for friends to put them in the front rows. And and <laughs> it was like at least three times in the opening five minutes, I would be like, hey, there's my pal Jason. Yeah. <laughs> I should interrupt my interrupt this opening monologue yeah. and say hi to him. Go shake some uh, hands, work the crowd. But yeah, yeah, that's what a monologue is for, right? Yeah. You're like, hey, I see you over there. Yeah, I, I think it was fine. Uh, you know, I think you don't want the lights too too high out there because it, you feel almost like you're you're yeah. part of the show and you, you kind of overexposed yeah. a little bit. But but you know what you did that's a movie theater scenario, so it doesn't need to be complete darkness except for the stage. And uh, it's funny, I I was thinking about this because I went to the ATP and relay shows too, and I was briefly on stage for the relay show, which those are at the Hammer Theater, which is on the San Jose State campus. Yeah. It's a couple blocks away. It's good, great, great little venue. Uh, that was the venue that the uh, that they used for the app documentary two years ago, right? Exactly. And now it's now it's it's like podcasts all week long. Yeah, well, like Marco and Casey and John yeah. went to the relay thing last week, and they said, uh, or last year, and they said, "Oh, this is good. We should do this." Because they were in the ballroom at AltConf, where they're right. like everybody's on the same level, and they've got a stage that's like six inches off the ground, and right. it's a better venue. But so standing in the wings, I'm literally waiting to go on and do my little cameo. Um, I I looked backstage where there's some there's some like audio equipment and stuff like that and a little video equipment that wasn't being used and um and i had that moment where i looked and i was like oh my god there's an enormous theater stage back here because of course there is um but you know the 
used part was this very small front of the stage. And I think it makes it, yeah, same reason. It's more intimate. You don't have you know, somebody on a horse riding by or something like nothing <laughs> like that is happening. It's just, it's just people talking into microphones. So, so get to the front of the stage. And, and I think it, uh, I think it works. I think it's great. I, it is amazing. There was a, did you see that article? There was an article in a German newspaper that literally the whole article was basically like, and it was like a five page long article on their website. It was a long article. It was basically, can you believe that people want to listen to basically dudes with microphones talking about yeah, computers on stage i thought i thought it was a great article i really enjoyed it i really did and i i wish it it it, it made me god i wish i could speak and read a, a, 10 different languages i'm i'm so inept at uh multiple languages i took four years of spanish in high school and all i can do is order uh, uh Amber, Ambergesos and uh, Cervezos. Sure. <laughs> like, sure. and, well, that's but, important stuff. Puerto Irobano. May I go to the bathroom? <laughs> I know. I don't even know how to ask where the bathroom is. Donde está el baño? I guess is where's the bathroom. So I I'm took s- German in high school and college, and yeah, it's a good. Uh, it's a good article, but it is funny that the premise. Right. Stepping outside our bubble for a moment, the premise is. Um, did you know that that there are all these podcasts about Apple? <laughs> it's like, no, I, and, and it is weird, right, damn. to think that people are going into big theaters to damn. sit and watch a podcast, which is fundamentally not a visual medium, yeah. live on stage all week. But we do, yeah. And you know, and, and I thought, I, I thought it was a fascinating article, and I really, you know, I don't know what nuance I missed by reading it through Google Translate, although I'm blown away by how good Google Translate has gotten. Yeah. It's truly truly one of the technical marvels of the world. It, it, it really is. And I, I probably get a rep as somebody who's anti-Google on the whole in the you know tech world. I, I have to say, I, I've always thought Google web search is truly a, a just a marvel of the world. Like seriously, like if if like Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin time traveled to today, what would you show them? How would you ease them into the modern world? Wouldn't I mean? Wouldn't Google search be one of the first things you show them? You know, yeah. just open up a computer or an iPad. You know, probably an iPad. Really, if you really want to wow them, single window, one field. Show them how you can search for stuff. Google Translate is absolutely astounding. It's it, it's truly amazing. It, yeah, it, it's it. I feel like in the next five or ten years, we're going to get to the point where you could literally read anything from anywhere in any language in your native language, and it uh, will be. I mean, already it's readable, <laughs> but I I think it, there's only a matter of time. You would think right. before it's they've they've used machine learning to scour every word, every sentence, every construction in English yeah. ever and in German ever, and will be able to just basically be it maybe never as artful as a human translator but like right. for web articles nobody else is going to translate them yeah. and if they're completely readable that's miraculous right that's right. amazing the article on on uh, these live podcasts and it started with sort of a you are there you're in the line for my show but yeah. you know he he talked about uh, all the other live shows that happened during the week at WDC but it was funny cuz there was like a little if you want to call it a translato you know a, a translation typo yeah uh it was like the snake the winds snake. the snake winds around the block and what he meant was i i guess i guess it somehow my my interpretation of how this got misinterpreted was that it, in german it said something like the queue snakes around the block i yeah. I, 
And some, somehow, though, the line from my show turned into a steak. <laughs> and Paul, Paul Kafas, this announcer of the show, and, and my wife, we all got, we were in a group chat when an article came out. And we all agreed that from now on, any sort of cue is. <laughs> Is a called, snake. Is a snake. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's literally German. German uses a word for snake to mean cue. So instead, or line. So instead of a line winding around, right. they say it's a a snake. Right. Is a line is a snake. So it, and that's one of those things that's interesting where Google Translate didn't get like Dishlanga Windet. It it, it it should be like you're. It's probably not a literally a snake winding around. It's probably a line, but right. it didn't do that. Uh, but it was a great article. It was, uh, and I think it's interesting because I do think there's something true to that. And the gist of the article, in the bigger term, was that Apple listens to podcasts, popular Apple podcasts, and you know they don't respond on a weekly basis, but they they clearly do listen. Uh, and I thought it was extraordinary and and so delightful how much access the the Apple podcast sphere got during wwdc i mean just off the top of my head uh federico interviewed uh, uh craig federighi, craig federighi yeah. on tuesday you had uh an interview with wiley hodges and josh and i always forget josh's surname. it's schaffer because schaffer. it's spelled like paul schaefer but it's right. not pronounced right. like that's that. see i get mixed up but wiley hodges and josh schaffer which i i'm just want to just Full stop, interrupt my show and say that upgrade episode, I think it's 249. Because one of That's the things right. I wanted to talk about is that <laughs> you guys you guys are going to lap me on, on episode numbers very shortly. Because this is, you and I are talking right now in the midst of episode uh, 255. Good number. Of my show. Yeah, we're almost at a buffer overflow. Uh Absolutely the best layperson overview of Swift UI, written, audio, otherwise, of any anything I've seen since WWDC. Episode two forty the whole episode people should listen to. Nobody should skip around. But if you were gonna skip around, I would skip around to the part where Jason interviews uh Wiley Hodges, who's a product manager in the DevTools team, and uh Josh Schaffer, who you know, uh, Swift UI is his baby. Yeah, basically. won't say. You know, nobody takes credit for it. They're at Apple. It's Apple's thing, but effectively, Swift UI is his thing, and it is absolutely phenomenal overview and and answers so many questions. Every single question I had, even questions that I didn't think to ask while I was with these guys in WWDC in San Jose, I was like, oh, I hope Jason asks Mike. And every single one that popped into my head, you would ask within 30 seconds of me thinking of it during this podcast. It's one of the best interviews I've seen. Not a wasted question. Such a great overview. Um, I appreciate that because I came out of it feeling sort of the way that I described earlier, which is, was that good or was that a disaster? I don't uh, know. And then um, because those guys, what's what's funny is like Craig Federighi, by the way, he's kind of a unicorn because (laughs) he is a deeply technical guy, but he also like totally gets. And, and, you know, Schiller is like this, but Schiller's not like a super technical guy. He's a he is a marketing guy. But Craig is is like you always feel it when he's walking around at WWDC. He's one of. Us one, you know, yeah. he is a he is a computer nerd. He is a developer. He's got cred in that area, but he also has really 
blossomed as a spokesperson and yeah. he straddles that line in a way that is i call him a unicorn because it's hard to find people who can communicate as somebody who was a, a tech magazine editor so hard to find people who know the technical stuff and can communicate it well and craig does it amazingly well and these guys are lower down in terms of like the details of this tech stuff but they also don't get out to yeah. communicate to the public a lot. And so that was the challenge is like, like I was telling you earlier before we started, um, there were a couple moments where I'd ask a question and they'd look at each other and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, what, did I, what did I do? Uh, because and I think it wasn't a problem with my question. It was right. that they don't have the internal map maybe as right. as much at hand as Craig does about what what how you answer a question, what you say, what, you, what you're allowed to say that won't get you in trouble. And they were like, like thinking about it a little bit. And that's what I really noticed about it versus your interview with Craig, where Craig is just like, I mean, not, he's super smooth. And also he's got somebody next to him who's in marketing who can pull the chain if he says something he, he shouldn't. He was on fire on my show. He, he really was. was. He was just absolutely on fire. Um, you're right. You're right. And and I part of it with Phil Schiller is not, I don't think it's so much that Phil Schiller can't speak to the technical details. He, he, almost certainly doesn't understand the software to a, a deep technical level like Federighi does just because it's Federighi's job. He's literally exactly. the head of software. But I think, uh, I think overall though, Schiller very, even when he's being relaxed and he's in a, Hey, I'm going to do this podcast, you know, like he was on ATP a couple months ago. He'll, he still doesn't want to break that seal. There's, there's, it, he's so old school Apple that he really doesn't want to break the seal on how the magic is done. You know. Yep. Yeah. It's it's true. And that this is something you know we witness when we talk to these these guys. And um, and I I should mention I said guys there. I should mention that one of the people that I got to talk to this year for upgrade was Colleen Novielli, who oh. ended up on stage at WWDC. Right. And I definitely got the sense like that that this was one of the that our interview was kind of like uh, getting her her feet wet yeah. in being doing public communication. And yeah. that and then then she's on stage and I'm like oh. And it was funny because a lot of people are like hey we know her and it's because her voice was on a podcast and i think that <laughs> apple that's why we had so many podcast interviews at dub dub this year is because um they tried it out with renee ritchie and then yep. they tried it out with with me and they've been doing these on stage interviews too with you and i think they finally were like this is great let's just go all in yeah. and so there were like a dozen different podcast interviews uh and and that was great to see too yeah so colleen was the woman who introduced the pro display xdr on right. stage in she was the, the one who clicked keynote. that button to get right. past the 999 stand as quickly <laughs> as possible uh but she's also you know if you're a close uh attention payer you would know that she's also the product manager for is it the imac pro for the, or for the iMac? imac imac as a whole iMac, iMac and yeah. imac pro um and absolutely knocked it out of the park kind of you know we we can get into this i think on the like the price of the pro display xdr <laughs> kind of had a tough that's a tough thing to pitch because you've got this amazing amazing product and it's sort of a shit sandwich when it comes down to how much it costs etc and well, who is your it for? audience for that product is not in the room, right? right. Like the developers exactly. are primed for a monitor that developers would want. If right. she was at one uh, at NAB or something, 
doing that presentation. People would have stormed the stage, right? People they, they, they would have been they falling down, faint in the aisles. Yeah, yeah, they would have run down the aisles and lifted her up on her shoulders like Vince Lombardi after the <laughs> Super Bowl too, and taken yeah. her off the stage. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Because they and they and they would have been, and it would have been because the price was so low. They'd be like, "Oh my God, I might get one of these on my desk." Yeah, it's I a thirty thousand dollar monitor for six thousand dollars. This is amazing. Whereas everybody else is like, "You're charging what? Huh?" Yeah. So. <laughs> We can hold that thought, but that was amazing, and she was great. And then she also did the uh, – there were a lot of behind-the-scenes briefings, off-the-record briefings for members of the media. Yeah. In um, I, I, Again, this sounds like looking a gift horse in the mouth to say that there were too many, but I had too many. Yeah. <laughs> and again – this uh, I'd rather have too many than not enough. It is an absolute privilege. This when I got into this racket, you know, twenty years ago, or started thinking about it. You know, this is where I wanted to be. And Mike, this is where you want to be. If you cover Apple as as a career, you would like to be in the circle where when WWDC Apple has uh, behind the scenes, off the record press briefings, you'd like to be invited to them. I'm there, and it's hap- I was happy to be there. But boy, there were a lot. But part, of- and I don't blame them. It, you know, it, it, and 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 it was not like a. It was absolutely not like a shotgun approach. Like here's all this stuff, and you know, you figure it out. It was. It was simply because they had so much to announce this year. I think, in hindsight, now that WWDC has settled in, our everybody's immediate impression that holy crap they did a lot this year and announced a lot this year was exactly spot on and it wasn't just our um excitement over the first day or two and and sort of you know every year it seems like a lot but it just seemed like this year it it truly was more than usual there really was a lot that they couldn't fit in the keynotes I feel like it was, and and you know what they do, of course, because they ask you, like they ask me, whenever you see an Apple person afterward in one of those briefings, they say, what did you think of the keynote? And you're like, oh, man, now I, you're asking me to review your thing that you just did. <laughs> and and what I said this time was, I think that might be the most dense Apple presentation, keynote presentation I've ever seen. Yep. Um, just content dense. There there have been more earth-shattering things like the iPhone launch. I mean, there are lots yeah. of those. but But in terms of just content density, like... We we have spent the last two years ish year and a half. How long ago was German's first Marzipan report? Talking about the implications of at Marzipan. Le- at least a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the implications of Marzipan for macOS. And did they give it even five minutes on stage? And they're off to the next thing. It was like I, I had that moment. Where I'm like, whoa, wait a second. That was Marzipan, and it's gone. The catalyst <laughs> is just like here it is, and we can't wait to see what you do with it. On to the next thing. We're going to do Swift UI now, and and that was that that thing. It was just super dense, and that's why we all had like. I don't know how it worked for you. There's a little inside baseball, but I got a little uh, email from an Apple PR person saying, well, here's what we've got you doing. And there were like eight things on it. And there was like a briefing and a demo and another briefing and another demo. Didn't even say what the briefings are because, of course, they're secret. And I just thought, what? You know, like, well, they're they're filling my schedule. It's like I'm I'm, um, at a conference or something where that's not WWDC. I'm like at the Apple conference that they are slotting me in all these slots but but they it's not like they didn't have stuff to talk about to all of us there was they were really deconstructing those two hours for the rest of the week did you get the uh privacy briefing i don't know if i got that one yeah i don't know if i got that one i I feel like that one might have been a shorter i don't know why it just seems like a lot of the people i talked to didn't get it but there was so much privacy and security 
stuff that oh, and, God, and yeah. in theory all of it everything they told me could have been in the keynote because mm-hmm. it's it, it's all useful it's all uh very pertinent to the daily life of people using these platforms and it's of course strongly aligned with apple's recent public push uh, to emphasize their privacy and security angle. Um, and yet uh, none of it made the keynote. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was insane. Yeah. There's a little in State of the Union, and then there, there were a bunch of sessions I went to. Like, because the depth of, like, even in macOS, you know, we, we focus on iOS so much, but, like, even in macOS, there are so many security and privacy things that they've done um, to lock down certain things, yep. but also allow apps to open up other yeah. things and like it's 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 very clear that at some point and i would love to know the backstory on this at some point um the directive came down from the top that that said we're going to impose some discipline on product design and also product communication where everything has a security and privacy story like yeah. you can't have a feature or a product at apple you can't present it on stage you can't formulate it without telling the story of how this is secure and how this uh makes sure that your information stays private and the, the discipline has been very impressive like in the last two years not a thing gets announced without security and privacy being mentioned hmm. yeah i totally agree um I, <laughs> it's it it's very impressive to me that, that how much stuff they had to announce. It's just crazy. I, I I know it's closer to the end of the month than the beginning of the month now, and I still feel like I'm not done processing everything. Yeah, I, I came out of it in a, like a haze for. I mean, I was watching uh, videos after the week was over to catch up on the sessions that I missed yep. because I was in briefings instead of in sessions. Yep. You know, because you can only be in one place. And it is even now like somebody pops up with something. They're like, "Oh, did you see that this thing got announced?" You know in this session and yeah. like, no, I had no idea. And, and, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how much they held back. And I think, I think the truth is one of the reasons it's like this is because a lot of stuff has been on the boil, um, for years in the yep. background. And then this is the year where they just released so much of it openly. So this is not like the, here's what we've been working on the last year. This is like yeah. some of this stuff we have been working on for five years and now you get to see it. Yeah. I, I sort of have that feeling too, that it's not necessarily indicative that every, every June is going to be this much of a bonanza no. of news. I think there's a little bit of that where I do feel like institutionally they've gotten better at, uh, as we've all said for a long time, probably ever since the iPhone came out, that they're getting better at walking and chewing gum at the same time, doing two things. Ever since that first iPhone came out and they had to announce that the major macOS version was going to be postponed six months because they had to pull engineers to to finish iOS 1.0, um, there's always been a sort of... I, I don't even think it's unfair. I think it's a little unfair insofar as we don't know the backstory because they're so secretive but from the outside it's kind of fair to say that apple has really only been good at doing one thing at a time no matter how big the company's gotten how wealthy they've gotten their profits they've you know had trouble over the last 12 years keeping all of the platforms moving together year after year as opposed to just moving the iPhone OS forward. I mean, who has succeeded at maintaining two user 
soft, separate user software platforms right. at all. Like Microsoft didn't right. do it. I, I, um, yeah, and and I think you look, you can use that lens to look at Catalyst and Swift UI yeah. and all the stuff that they they only talked about briefly last year. But like under the hood, they've been trying to correct for all the drift that's happened right. over the last decade between because it was iOS was based on Mac OS, but it's drifted, and now you want to bring the app platform back together. You got to kind of have all the pieces be the same version and react the same way. And they, you know, a lot of this is about Apple saying we can't maintain these two yeah. completely separate platforms. We just can't do it. So yeah, and I, I so it, it's almost like it's unfair to say they should have been doing better. But I do. I feel like maybe they are. I, this was the year to me where they really showed that they could move everything forward. Uh, in an interesting way. And I think Swift UI is a big part of that because it's, it was conceived uh, apparently originally for the watch, but yeah. then it, they were like, this would work everywhere. And right now, this summer with the developer betas, you can use Swift UI on every single shipping Apple platform, TV, mm-hmm. watch, iPhone, iPad, Mac. That's amazing. And it's very different from the way stuff has rolled out in previous years, where usually, you know, whatever platform it was meant for first would ship first, and then other things would come a year later, maybe two years later. SwiftUI debuting on all the platforms right from the get-go is is a huge deal. And and beyond SwiftUI itself, which I think is really interesting, really Apple-y technology, I think the fact that it's shipping on all their platforms at first is one of the biggest stories of of the month. It also prevents um, kind of a platform, uh, I don't know, like a not invented here effect that you would get otherwise. Like if this yeah. was, if this was, uh, and I'm not saying this is right, I'm just saying this is what would happen. If they came out and said, here's a great new way to write watch apps, mm-hmm. and then a year later they said, it turns out you can write Mac apps with this too, I th- or or iPad apps, P- Mac and iPad people will be like, what, you want us to have watch apps now? Why are you doing this to our platform? And so they're like, no, 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 it's for everybody from the get-go. And I, like it defuses a lot of arguments about like was this originally supposed to be for my platform and now you're or, or for that platform you're importing it into mine it's just like no it's for everybody from the beginning and, and those arguments just don't happen and i think that's and you can all mix and match which is something that i talked about with yep. josh and wiley right yep. that that this is not one of those things where it's like well if you want to build a new app you can build it in this but your old app too bad it's like no you could literally you can build a mac app Yep. For Catalina, that is using Swift UI and Interface Builder, that's written in Objective C, that's uh, written in Swift, that uses UI Kit as well as App Kit. <laughs> you could literally put yep. all these different technologies, some stuff from iOS, some stuff from Mac, the new stuff in a single Mac app, and it'll just work. I, like that's the kind of amazing thing here is they're not making you choose. You can actually mix and match this stuff if you want to as a developer. There's, there's, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, as as the saying goes. Uh, it it's different, but in some ways, it is philosophically exactly the mentality that Apple has had ever since the next uh, acquisition, and or as I call it, like to call it the reunification. Um, it, it you know this this. Uh, this way, it, and you emphasized it on upgrade. I think when you were talking with Wiley and, and Josh, yeah. like BB Edit as an example of an app that has been in active development since 
I think like 1991, 1990, 1991, at least publicly 1992 was when Rich released right. it. And it's never really had a, okay, throw everything out. We have to do it all over from scratch. It has always been, okay, let's rewrite this part. Let's write, rewrite this part. Let's rewrite, uh, uh, let's redo you know, these dialogue boxes to make them uh, the, use the modern UI toolkit you know, so that we can keep going. And now all of a sudden here we are in 2019 and the app is 64-bit. It's a 64-bit Cocoa app. That never once got rewritten from being a 32-bit <laughs> pre-carbon yeah. classic macOS app in 1992. Uh, in, a, in my Macworld piece last week where I referenced your classic like 2010, talk about 10 years ago, um, wow. piece, I, I call it the app of Theseus where it's right. like literally like you replace every part of the ship. Is it still the same ship? Right. And, and like BBN, it's like that. Like Rich Siegel has replaced every part of that app, but he never had a schism I, I feel where it just, oh, old BB Edit is gone and here's new BB Edit. He's just he kept replacing the pieces. And that so reflects on how Apple does this, where yeah. they roll this stuff through. And as you, you said, it's that constant iteration. Um, and you wrote about that in 2010. It was already clear that that's Apple's whole stock and trade is you make some leaps. But really, the, the, the key is that you then just keep pushing and keep iterating. And you end up with these transitions that... Uh, what my piece is about is like it's the invisible transition strategy. It's like there's no Swift UI schism. What's going to happen is we're going to sit around using our apps, and in five years those apps are all going to be like written in Swift and built with Swift yep. UI. But we're not going to notice in a lot of cases because it's just going to happen in the background. The developers yep. will put in the work, but for us it's just like I'm just using my Apple stuff and it works, and that is how it should be. Yeah, it's exactly right. And you know, so you can take an app like you said that's written in Objective C. Uh, has been around like on the iPhone for 10 years already and you have a new 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 feature you want to add one new feature you could do just that feature that view in Swift UI and just introduce Swift UI into this 10 year old app for one view and that'll be fine yep and no and the user won't know it won't be like oh all of a sudden when I go into this feature everything looks different you know um I, it's it's just a very Apple-like way of introducing something that is truly, truly significant. If, if, if there's one thing, and it's not a complaint because I don't know what else Apple could do, is I, I do feel that the nature of their their public keynotes and the WWDC keynote, it, to me, it's the most fun event of the year because you never know what you're going to get, right? Like September probably September 7th or so, I don't know what day of the week it is, but you and I are probably going to be standing around outside the Steve Jobs Theater on some Tuesday within, you know, nine days of the beginning of September. Yeah, it'll be like and, the 10th of September this year is a Tuesday, uh, so probably, let's right. say that. I'll That's, see you there. Yeah. yeah, I'll probably, yeah, maybe I should book an air flight right now, book my plane, because <laughs> that's probably it, because they're not going to do it on the 3rd because it's too close to Memorial Day. Um and you, you, we know what we're going to get. We're going to get new iPhones, and they're going to tell us, you know, whatever new features of iOS are optimized just for these new phones. Probably camera features and stuff like that. I, I mean, that's cool. I, I always have a good time. It's like I said, I don't want to look at gift horse in the mouth. It is. It, I, I'm honored to be at this position in in this field to get invited to these things. But WWDC is more exciting because you don't know what you're going to get. 
right? Like we know that September event is going to be about iPhones. And, and if there's an October event, we'll probably have a good idea of what it's about just from leaks. You know, is it new MacBooks or something like that? WWDC, you just don't know. And I, this year to me was just like the canonical example of, wow, we got everything. I mean, you and Mike uh, on Upgrade do like the, what do you call it, bingo? What do you guys yeah, have? Yeah, the draft. It's a, the, the draft. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the keynote draft where we tra- take turns picking what's going to be set on stage. But like everything hit this year. Oh, like, yeah. How did... <laughs> the, score, the score was nine to nine. We had 10 picks each. Uh, we, you know, it was nine to nine. We had to go to a tiebreaker. And even then, arguably, I mean, it was almost 10 to nine. But in the end, we Does... decided that one of Mike's didn't make it. So, yeah, it was which makes it a lot less interesting when sort of like, yeah, it, 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 we, we got all these things right. But um, that's the funny thing is that is that big picture is not the details. And right. uh, there, there were a lot of there are a lot of details missing this time that, yeah. that because it's software, right? They, they you get the big picture. Mark Gurman is talking to people who have a little bit of an idea of what's going on. And Guy Rambo is, you know, digging through codes. Things. Somewhere. But it's just code, right? But, it's just like framework decompilations. Right. So it's the, what I always say is it's that parable of the blind man and the elephant, which is like they, they're touching this giant animal and they can't tell what it is, and one of them thinks it's a snake, and one of them th- <laughs> thinks it's a rhino, and and uh, yeah. it's like that where like we got the details, but what's the story? And that right. and with software, there's no supply chain to leak, and you end up with this. The, you know, it's much more kind of mysterious, and something like like Swift UI. So you. Back in like a long time ago, there was this whole question about like what was Marzipan and what was Swift UI, right. and you went back and forth with German about it a little bit because German was like, "Oh, Marzipan." You said, "Well, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing it's this other thing," and that was Amber, right? right. Which turns out to be Swift, Swift UI. UI. So we knew something about it, but what we knew, especially about Swift UI, was almost nothing other than that it existed and maybe we'd see it sometime. That was it. I knew a little bit more. <laughs> well. I mean, what I mean, but we, I, it's like I, the rest I, of right. us who are on the outside uh, looking in. I right? was I was given this information over a year ago on the condition that I not share it widely. And I agreed to that. And I didn't share it widely. And it wasn't me trying to be a Weisenheimer. I, it was the conditions under which I was told about it. Um, but the long story short is that Swift UI is a, is a much bigger project than Marzipan slash Catalyst. And way more people are involved. And if you just think about it, I mean, the fact that it is the UI framework for all of these platforms and they've already – I forget how many frameworks they said that it already includes. It's like 40 of the frameworks from UIKit and AppKit are already in Swift UI. And the, the genius of this system is that for the ones that aren't in Swift UI as native Swift UI, they just call down to the underlying – platform, you know, frameworks that are already in UIKit and AppKit. So you, you don't miss anything when you're writing an app in Swift UI, but a bunch of the stuff is already like it's not just a wrapper that calls down to UIKit and AppKit. It's it's really, really a huge project. It is truly I, I it what Federighi said when he introduced it that this is this is sort of a once every twenty years, twenty five year generational change. Right. I, I honestly don't think he oversold it at all. I really think it's that big of a deal. It is as big a deal as when Apple first said the future of our of the Mac is these next technologies, the next frameworks, Coco for writing apps. Uh, it, it's that big a deal. It's like the introduction of Coco, in my opinion. Um, it's it's hard not to imagine that in five or ten years, like 
Anything can happen, but it seems that the plan is that most of the software written for Apple's platforms in the 2020s, you know, as the 2020s go on, is going to be Swift and uh, Swift UI. Like, not everything, uh, maybe, and certainly not at first, but like, this is their, you know, what what, uh, uh, Wiley said was, uh, what is it, the future is great and also... Um, secret or something like that. He basically, <laughs> basically, it's like the the struggle at Apple is you never want to talk about the future, but you also want to pump up right. this thing that you just announced and how important right. it is for the future. Right. And that's the balance they have to strike. But yeah, I mean, that's the impression I guess they didn't do this, you know, for a lark. This is their right. this is the future that they think unifies all their app platforms in terms of the, the what you need to know, which is not the same as building one size fits all apps. It's just in terms of what you need to know. Like when we talk about um, AppKit and UIKit and iOS developers and Mac developers, the thing I keep trying to emphasize with people is, you know, it, it's not about even, even uh, Catalyst is not necessarily about like creating a one size fits all app. Apple went up there and said, "You look, you check the box, you're not done. You, then you need to make a good iPad app. Then you need to make a good Mac app." The the issue with Mac development for iOS developers is they don't know how to do it because AppKit is not UIKit. They learn the other thing. And with Swift UI, you learn the one thing and you know right. how to build stuff and Swift, you, you know how to build stuff on all of Apple's platforms and that's yeah. better. You still want to build, build a good watch app, a good phone app, a good Mac app, but you don't need to like learn a whole separate set of tools for each one. And that's huge for developers. And I'd imagine for everybody inside Apple too, <laughs> who yeah. has to support these platforms. All right. Hold that thought. I, I want to pick that up okay. right after this message from our first sponsor away. I love this company away makes suitcases. Uh, and they've got two types now. Uh, the original with durable German polycarbonate, and now they have aluminum ones. I don't have an aluminum one. I've got uh, uh, the plastic one. They call it polycarbonate. But I, again, they've been sponsoring the show, I think, for like four years, maybe even more. I've, I, they sent me one when they first sponsored the show. I've taken it with me every single place I've gone for the last four years. Every airplane trip, every train trip to New York, every time I leave my house for more than a night, I take this suitcase. It still looks brand new. And I, it's not like I'm like babying it. And the wheels, super smooth like butter. I, I absolutely cannot believe how durable this suitcase is. Um, and the carry-ons that they have. They have all you know three sizes or actually four sizes, two sizes of carry-ons, like a regular carry-on, a bigger carry-on. The carry-ons all come with a TSA-compliant ejectable battery. It, and when I say it's ejectable, it is so easy. You just click it down, it pops right out. Because you know, the reason you want that is that if you have to check your bag, you know, like if, you're, if it's your carry-on, you're hoping to put it over your head in the airplane. But they say, hey, the overheads are full. We're going to have to uh, check these things. They tell you you can't have a battery in there. You just pop it right out. You keep it with you, you know, put it in your pocket or, or put it in a seat uh, little little folder there in front of your seat pops right out. You don't need any tools, anything like that. Couldn't be better, but having a five X, like a thing that can charge your battery five times right there in your suitcase is amazing because every single seat you could take at the airport, no matter where you go, you've got a charger right there. You don't have to look for like an outlet or something like that. And I'm it. it there is no place in the world where you more need extra battery power than airport because every single airport I've ever been to just it's it's like you can just watch the battery on your phone just drain right down terrible 
love this uh, feature of their suitcases. Uh, everything else, what else? They've got a TSA-approved combination lock. They've got uh, a great inter- inside the suitcases. They have this patent-pending compression system. All that means is that there's sort of compartments, and then you can put your shirts on the one side and then squeeze a thing down and cinch it up on top of it. keeps your shirts from getting wrinkled. You can kind of pack more stuff in the suitcase by, by sort of squeezing stuff in there. It, once you have it, it's very obvious how it works. It works great. keeps your shirts from getting wrinkled. Really, really love my away suitcase. Here's the deal. They've got a special offer for listeners of the show. Go to awaytravel.com slash talk show 20 awaytravel.com slash talk show 20. The 20 is because you save 20 bucks off any suitcase. Just use that code talk show 20 during checkout. Uh, and you'll save 20 bucks on any suitcase. I cannot recommend this product enough. I would recommend it to people even if they weren't a sponsor. Love their products. My thanks to Away Travel. Um, all right. So here's the thing that I was thinking about. To me, one of the most telling things about Swift UI is the fact that it's the first native third-party API for the watch. And in fact, it's going to be the only native API for the watch. So up until now, third-party developers have had to use quote unquote watch kit and it's not native it's it's a weird hybrid sort of development thing i've never really heard anybody uh, any of my developer friends say good things about it uh and it's not what apple itself uses to write the first party apps on the watch and i kind of touched on this on my live show i don't know it you know it time is limited but I, i i i really feel and And I've heard this from my developer friends over the years that you can always tell which APIs Apple itself uses and which ones they don't. And it's just human nature. You you can think, you can be altruistic and think, hey, we're not going to use this API, but we want our third-party developers to have a great API for this. We don't need it because we're going to use this internal non-public API, Um, but we'll do as good a job as we can on this public API. If they're not using it, it just it, it's just human nature. It just isn't as good as as when Apple itself is using it. And you know, I think it shows. I think it showed. You know, I think for all of the popularity of the watch and the way that the watch has really blossomed in the four or five years since it debuted, the third party app story has always been a sore spot. It was absolutely awful. I, I honestly shouldn't have shipped the first year. I, you know, there must have been some. I, I'm sure there was some debate in the company as to whether they should have even shipped the original watch kit, given how slow watch apps were to load. So slow as to almost be unusable. Well, and keep in mind at that point they were just being run like the watch was basically right. an external display. They were entirely uh, run on the iPhone, which is a root uh, decision that I understand. But it also, like, I feel like this is the moment where Apple's like, all right. We are still uh, dealing with that decision, and yeah. it made all of these apps compromised, yep. and so now it's it, we're over it. It's done. Yeah, and you know, and there were good technical reasons for it. The, yeah. the original watch was so you know technically you know had low battery life; it barely got through a day for most people, and that was with all of the native code being Apple's own code that they sweated over every single detail and every subroutine to make sure this isn't going to you know. Uh, burn excessive battery life. You know, we got to be as cautious as we can. Uh, I get it. 
But I think it's so interesting that there's there is never going to be an Objective C interface to writing a native watch app for third party developers. It's it's the first platform where it's Swift all the way. Yeah, it is. It is, and it, the thing that that really popped into my head, and again, it's it gets back to like what you said, like with Wiley. Uh, you know, they're not going to talk about the future, but implicit at this WWDC is whatever the next platforms are going to be from Apple, whether it's like AR glasses or a car or something, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, you know, that they're rumored to be working on. All of the, anything that's coming from Apple in the future is going to be Swift UI, both first party and third party. Yeah, it's, as soon as they can and that they're, right. You know, when I asked Josh and Wiley that question, I was like, are people using this inside Apple? And they're like, well, some. And I, I definitely got the impression, I think they, they suggested the idea that some people were able to use it. The other people were not aware it existed yet and now would learn about it and be able to do it. But it's clearly um, it's clearly where they're going. I had a question for you about SwiftUI and Catalyst, which is okay. you've been a very cranky guy on Twitter and on Daring Fireball about Catalyst. Uh, you've yep. been skeptical. You're you're sort of like, are these going to be toy apps? Are these going to be bad apps? And you know, I'm more positive about it as somebody who really likes my iPad and my Mac. I look at it as this positive that there are apps that I would like to see on the Mac that aren't there now because they're iOS apps. And uh, bringing those over and having them be good Mac apps makes my Mac my Mac better. That said, it's also very clear, it's inevitable, we're going to get some really lousy Catalyst apps on the Mac, right? That's inevitable that somebody who doesn't get the platform is going to do a half-assed job and there's going to be bad Mac apps. But my question for you is, is is your concern about Catalyst, was it more motivated by the idea that in the end, the only apps that Apple would really let anybody write on the Mac would be these Catalyst things that were built for a platform that is very different from the Mac, and that that would be the future of the Mac is just running kind of iOS imports uh, versus, like, is that mitigated now by the existence of something like Swift UI, where you say, oh, this is a transition technology. I don't need to be concerned about it taking over the Mac. It's just for compatibility and transitional stuff. And the future is this thing where the Mac is an, uh, like an equal partner. It's one of the platforms. And, you know, you can write apps. It, it, am I, I'm trying to kind of, like, deconstruct your attitude toward these two things and why. Because I feel like you were really concerned that the Mac was going to get screwed up by being kind of like just full of hey. Catalyst imports. And now that's not a worry anymore because Catalyst isn't the future. It's a bridge and SwiftUI is the future. I think it's a great question. Uh, it's absolutely one of the top reasons I wanted to have you on this this first post-WWDC episode. Um, I'm not so worried about... I, I'm very still or remain to this moment very skeptical about the utility of Catalyst, and um, I don't think it's going to be a very good thing for the Mac. But I, I kind of also think it's almost like a non-event, and I do feel like the one underlying mystery of this year's WWDC is the relationship between Swift UI and Catalyst, and inside Apple and what what their messaging is on it and cause it, they're clearly two entirely different products that are that for sure that were absolutely developed independently and neither one needs the other, but they also clearly overlap in very broad and obvious ways, which is, Hey, if you want to share a code base between 
iOS and Mac OS, this is what you, this is a way to do that. Um, right. I think that we are definitely going to see it. I think most apps that are ported over with catalyst are going to be bad, but I don't think that matters. I've, you know, in one way I look back at this is that I kind of got the whole app store wrong. Just going back to the original 2008 iOS app store, uh, I thought back in 2008 that Apple, during their review process, was going to be a lot more uh, judgmental about the quality of apps and saying this isn't good enough and we're just going to reject this because it's it it's like amateur hour. Uh, we don't that want, didn't we, happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. I, I, I thought it would be more curated um, like their retail stores, right? Like So when you go into an Apple retail store – most of the stuff they sell is actually from Apple. But like when you go to the sides and you look at like the third party iPhone cases they sell and stuff like uh, external hard drives, you can go in there and buy, you know, SSD drives and cables and, and there's other, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on the sides that are from third party companies, but it's all stuff that like you look at it and you think, Oh yeah, this belongs in an Apple store. Right, it's not like going to Amazon and shopping for stuff, and you right. can find anything and everything from any Chinese knockoff company, you know, uh, that you can think of. I thought the App Store was going to be more like the physical Apple retail stores, curated, and you know, trying to to keep only high quality apps in the store. And it obviously wasn't like that at all. It's it's pretty much if it works and does what you say it does uh, and doesn't break any rules, then you're in. And, you know, for maybe that's the better way. Maybe that's actually, you know, it, there's a, you know, there, if Apple were more uh, strict about keeping out stuff that just was kept out just because the UI wasn't good, maybe we'd be having more discussions about, you know, antitrust sort of right. control they'd, over the they'd store. almost need to allow sideloading if they were right. that strict about it right. because you, you could just completely arbitrarily knock software out of the store. Right. Um, you know, in the Mac... The, the, like they, one thing that surprised me is that Catalyst apps that use Catalyst don't have to be in the Mac App Store. That surprised no. me. So it's it's yep. open. Like they could they they could say nope, this is terrible. Uh, they won't, but they could do that and put it out of the Mac App Store. Uh, they just bad apps won't get featured. I right. think is what's going to happen. Right, and so you know, basically, I expect that there will be a ton of bad apps. I don't think it'll matter any worse than it has mattered for all these years that. Uh, that there are tons of bad apps in the store. And I think most Catalyst apps are going to be bad apps. And, you know, but somebody's going to make good ones, and that's there, cool. So I don't know if you saw it, but the, the guy who does Ferrite, which is the app that I use on, on iPad to edit podcasts. No, I did uh, not see this. He did a thread on Twitter about what his thoughts are. And, and, and you know, he's like, people are asking me, and I, I will admit I went and looked because I was curious if he had talked about it. And um, and Ferrite's a really good app. It's a it's, uh I, honestly, I want it on the Mac because I think I would use it instead of Logic if I if I could. Plus, I would be able to edit on either platform, and there's no way to take a Logic project and put it on a Mac and or, or put it on a, an iPad and iPad. go back and forth. So I'm really interested in this. And what he said was, um, first off, he's got a lot of improvements on iOS to do for iOS 13, and he's going to focus on those first. And then after that, he's going to um, 
look at the Mac and and Catalyst and find a way to do it. But he says, I'm going to take my time and I want to do it right. And I think like that's going to be a good Mac app when it comes out. And I yeah. want to wait. I don't want the lousy iOS port version. I want a, a really good Mac app so that I can just switch my podcast editing over to it. I think there will be apps like that. I think there will be developers like that who really care about it. And I'll just say, I think one thing that Catalyst, because Catalyst is a bridge technology. If you're writing something brand new, you should probably try to do as much of it in Swift and Swift UI as possible. But there's so much code that was written for iOS that could be repurposed. And the one area where I think it makes a lot of sense is going to be, um, you think about Apple combining the message of make a good iPad app and make a good Mac app. It's the addressable market of iPad and Mac together is a better market than either of them separately. And so Ferrite's a great example. This is an app that totally could have a market on the Mac, but he wrote it for iOS. So if he do, if he can take that and put it on the Mac... That's great. And I think there are it's going to be a class of apps that are more pro-focused, more power user-focused, that are iOS apps that will be able to run on the Mac now and will be welcomed by Mac users who, you know, because it makes more financial sense for the developers to put in the work because they've yeah. radically increased the addressable size of the market by writing something that goes to both iPad and Mac. So I think that's the... For me, that's the shining part of Catalyst. That and maybe some of the media apps, just yeah. because like it kills me that I can do picture-in-picture picture on my iPad for Major League Baseball or for Netflix or for Xfinity for my like my cable uh, uh, streaming, and I can't do it on my Mac. I gotta open Chrome and put it in, and turn on yeah. Flash and then just stick a window in the corner, and it's terrible. So if those media apps, you know, if this is what it takes for them to do picture-in-picture picture on the Mac. I'll, I'll take it. But I think it's those two kinds of apps that are going to be the ones that I want to see out of Catalyst. Yeah, and the other one that I think is going to be a win, but I could be totally wrong, and it, and, and it's almost irrelevant to my own personal usage, is games. And I, I feel like yeah, the sure. game story could be huge. And I know – I don't think it's a complete coincidence. I, I do feel like – you said this about half an hour ago, I think, on the show, where it was just like a bunch of a couple of multi-year projects that came together this year, right? Right, and and when you've got projects that maybe are on a hey, this is going to take three years, this might take four years before we can even get it to the shape where it's ready to be unveiled, and you have a couple of projects on these multi-year development before you even unveil it. it it's just a, a a matter of luck whether a bunch of them come out the same year or not, right? It's just right. the way that the math works out that, wow, here's a three-year project. Here's a four-year project. They're already in 2019. Here they are. Don't expect this much new stuff every year. It just doesn't work like that. Um, I, I don't know, though, that it's a complete coincidence that in the <laughs> year that they're pushing Apple Arcade as a new major service that that this technology that could really open up a bunch of iOS games to the Mac uh, is at the same time. I, I think that that's a major factor in that in the whole internal politics of is Catalyst worth like Swift UI to me is a no brainer. Like, and and when you hear Craig Federighi talk about it, it's clear that like when he was shown it. And he got it. He was like a hundred percent on board. And he was like, "I'll go down guns a blazing to make sure this happens." Like, he he's like a bigger Swift UI enthusiast than Josh is, right? And Josh is the guy who made it. Yeah. Um, 
I think Catalyst was was more of a political battle. I, I, I just from what they say publicly and just what we know about it, I think because it's you know trade-offs well, it's, it's it's a bridging technology yeah. it's not it's not really that exciting it is the solution to a major problem mm-hmm. which is apple's biggest de- base of developers yeah. use yep. macs but don't yep. know how to write mac apps and they've Correct. got a huge amount of code that isn't existing and even if you've got a new way to do apps that yep. you're going to roll out maybe even the same year what do they do with all their existing code? Because then you're like, hey, Swift UI, uh, but only the Swift UI parts will work on the Mac. The rest of the work you did yeah. won't translate. It's like, like it, it's almost like a. It's not like Catalyst isn't going to evolve, but Catalyst is all about like we need to get this code base to be portable, and now it is great, and that like that's what it's for. And <laughs> and because again, the Ferrite guy, he will like BB Edit. He will probably over time. <laughs> If if that app still exists in ten years, it will probably have been rewritten to use Swift and Swift UI. Probably, like, yeah, yeah. Let's say that. Um, but in the short term, he's not going to rewrite it to right. bring it to the Mac. That's not going to happen. So Catalyst is there for that. I I I only say this half joking. I I think I wrote this at some point on Daring Firewall. But effectively, it was almost as though Catalyst was announced at WWDC and effectively deprecated later in the same keynote at WWDC. <laughs> and that doesn't mean it don't use it, don't touch it, don't you you know that it won't be an important thing for the next few years. But it's clear, like you said, it's a bridging technology. From yeah, we what? thought it was the future, and it turns right. out it is a transitional technology, right. and that Swift UI is the future, and Swift, and that's yeah, it, it uh, that's why I think there is a strong argument that they that they really needed to announce these things for developers simultaneously, because what you don't want is to give the developers right. this idea that what you really need to do is just start building iOS apps for the Mac. That's that's how you get to the Mac. They're, they're like, no, no, no. This right. is for your, it's basically like, this is for your existing code. Yeah. <laughs> the new stuff, do it over here, because this is the future for everything. Um, all right, let me take a break. Thank our next sponsor, another longtime friend of the show, our good friends at Eero, E-E-R-O. Eero gives you Wi-Fi at your house, and they do it in the best way with a mesh network. Instead of having one base station somewhere, maybe by your TV, because that's where your cable box is or something like that, and then trying to saturate your whole house with a network from one device. Eero gives you multiple devices, some of them just tiny little like nightlights, literally that optionally have a nightlight that you can just plug in a socket and control through the app and just have it show a little light to, to walk your footway down the hallway or wherever you put it in your house. Uh, absolutely a better way to do Wi-Fi in a house that's more than like one room. And they've also got their new product, Eero Plus, which is a service, and it's it, it defends your network against uh, security threats, blocks malware you can configure it to uh, block phishing attacks you can configure it per device so like you could say like your kids maybe their devices aren't allowed to access adult content stuff like that uh you can configure it all it sounds like oh boy that would be complicated you'd have to be like a network administrator you do it all through the app on your phone and in my opinion as much as i love eros hardware their software is better than the hardware because it it simplifies Wi-Fi network management to the level you want it to be simplified to while giving you the control that you would want. 
Uh, I don't know why. I have mine set up. I love it. I, I like to have a notification every time a new new device joins my network. And like maybe my son has a friend come home after school, gives him the password to our Wi-Fi, and I get a little notification that there's a new uh, Apple iPhone that joined the network. I like knowing that. I don't know why. I love it. It's it, But if you don't want to know stuff like that, you can configure it not to do it. Um, Eero Plus even has content blocking so that you can do stuff like block ads right at the network level. It, it's really great. They offer VPN protection. If you want from encrypt.me, they have integrated. When you have Eero Plus, you can even get password management from 1Password, all best of breed software. It really is a great product. You're listening to me talk to Jason right now over an Eero network that I've had for years right here at my house. Uh, and everything you want, all the WPA2 encryption, they've got all these other talking points. Anything you want that's like secure like that, they've got it. And they even offer great customer support. I really doubt you need it. I've only had, I think I had to call them once. I forget what it was for. But I did call them once like a year or two ago. Fantastic customer support. It took me like five minutes to get whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. But for the most part, you don't even need it. But if you do need it, you can get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds typically. And they'll talk you through everything you need to do. Uh, so honestly, I think it's a great product. Really, really like it. So never think about Wi-Fi again. If you need a new Wi-Fi system at your house, you can get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package. That's a base station, little thing about the size of an Apple TV. And then the beacons are the little nightlight things you can plug in around your house. That gives you three little devices, saturate your whole house. If you need more or you need less, fewer devices, they'll talk you through it on the website. But that, that uh, Eero base unit, two beacons package with one year of Eero plus service you can get for a hundred dollars off by going to Eero.com slash the talk show. And just remember that code, the talk show when you check out and you'll get that hundred dollars off the, the, uh, that package. My thanks to Eero. You've got the Eero, right? I do. They're, they're uh, my whole house now. I realized I, I put in this smart irrigation uh, controller, and uh, as I'm you know attaching it to the wall, I thought, oh, no. Is there Wi-Fi over here? But there is, because there's an Eero beacon in my bedroom, and it's right behind that. So, so yeah, I can sit in the backyard and, and do my... You, know, I, stuff the, you were just Wi-Fi. talking about that on one of your podcasts, right? Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I just, I, I just never even thought about like, oh no, right. what if there's no Wi-Fi out here? Because this is not a place where anybody goes. It's the yeah. side yard with the gravel and like the tool shed and stuff like that. And now this this irrigation controller. But yeah, it gets it. It's not a problem. That's a great service. Um, all right. Uh, I here's my thing about the Catalyst app. So is I, I have to say this the. The apps that Apple is shipping using Catalyst, there's four that debuted last year yeah. at WWDC, and they shipped as part of Mojave, and they're still there in Catalina. News and Stocks, which are a f- very similar apps. I, I, I don't even know. I, I bet they share a lot of code because the Stocks sure. app is mostly – it shows you stock prices, but for the most part shows you business news. It's just It's just like the business section of Apple News. Yeah, for the most news, part, news about stocks is what uh, it is. Voice memos and home, uh-huh. and then there's a new one this year, the podcast app, which we can get to. But of those original four, and Find My is also a, oh, a catalyst is it? app. Okay, yeah. Find My is all right. Um, 
I've, I, I'm absolutely boggled that the original four Marzipan apps were touched so barely in in the intervening year because yeah. there were so many problems with it uh, with them, so many ways that they are just bad Mac apps, and. At some point in recent months, I just sort of gave up and I thought, well, I'll just shut up until I see what they ship at WWDC. And if anything, they're worse. I mean, like the the Apple News app, at some point, one of the complaints I had, I know other people had, was that there was no way to copy the original URL. So like let's say you're reading a story from the Washington Post and it's in Apple News. You can copy the apple.news URL and then paste it to somebody. And then if, if they're on an Apple device, it'll open in the Apple news app. But what I would want to do is send them the original story at WashingtonPost.com. And certainly what I would want to do if I want to link to it at daring fireball is linked to that original story. Sure. Uh, on iOS, it was possible. It's always been possible to get those URLs. You could just say open in Safari and then it opens in Safari and then you have the original URL. On the Mac, you couldn't, which seems crazy. It seems like if either of the platforms was going to have a more powerful, nerdy, give me a different, you know, give me the original URL, it would be the Mac. They didn't have it. Uh, and we complained about it. And then they added it. I think it was in the file menu or something. It was it was weird. It, it Also, it was in the whole way that Catalyst just seems weird. It was like the way they added the feature still seemed weird. It was like, why is it in the file menu? Yeah, it's in the file menu. It's open in Safari and there's oh, yeah. no keyboard shortcut. Right. Yeah. Why is this in the file? Shouldn't this be an edit? Shouldn't it be like an alternate to like copy URL and copy original URL? Like right. Maybe, and shouldn't uh, it also be in the share button that's right, right there? Right. It should be in. Yeah. Why is it not in the share button? Well, anyway, now that that's gone, it's we're back to not even having it. Oh, so like boy. when you're in Catalina, there's no way to get the original URL anymore. And I realize now all of a sudden I, I've, just suddenly popped into my head that like a month ago, Moltz was on my show and I promised that I would share my my script for turning an Apple News URL into the original URL and I, I still haven't done that. So all right, I've popped it back into my head. I'll I'll get that right. out one of these I, days. You know, um, my the one that drives drives me crazy is that in automation in the home app, uh when you set a time and it, it it's uh the spinner. Yeah. Uh, which is, is a delightful, <laughs> delightful uh, touchscreen interface, right? right? It's whimsical right. and functional right. and much better than like having to type in a time on the keyboard right. or something. On the Mac, it is a disaster. Like it, it is, uh, it is malpractice for that to still right. be in there. And I am also, I'm like, I, I hope I am trying to heap scorn on it this summer in the hopes that somebody at Apple will hear the rising scorn and be right. like, guys, can you just fix that? Please. Just Did you see? I, I tweeted a day or two ago, just like a, a screen recording of that interface in the home app. And also, in addition to the fact that it is a very bad control, the 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 iOS touch date picker is a very bad control for a mouse pointer interface. Yes. But in addition, when you resize the window, it it does really bizarre things when you get to a certain minimum height. It it suddenly jumps to a different size class. Oh yeah, it, it snaps to the sides of the window instead of floating in the center. Right, but and in addition to the fact that that's not that shouldn't be what it does on the Mac. It's just not a good Mac interface. <laughs> the fact that there's no animation 
also it just seems so junky. It's also right? a fake window inside a window, right? It's right. this fake it's window f- that looks like a window, right. but you can't click on it. You can't slide it around. It's not really a window. They've just grayed out the back and locked this modal thing. And yeah, it's bad. And I again, I was forgiving in Mojave because it's like, well, this is bad. Uh, but first, in, during the beta, it was like, surely they'll fix this by the time they ship. That didn't happen. But at least we get the functionality, and it's not for third parties yet. So surely next year, when they improve this technology and hopefully yeah. give it a name, which they did, uh, it will be better. And those apps still don't seem to have been touched. And Craig Federighi has said some very weird things to journalists where he yes. said, he said, well, a lot of those things that you ascribe to uh, Catalyst is really actually just a design decision. And I think to myself, is he kind of throwing his designers under the bus there? Because what he's basically saying is, oh, our technology is great. We just made terrible choices. <laughs> like, uh, really? Uh, really? They've spent the entire Mac OS ten era. I mean, ever since Aqua was unveiled, right? I mean, it, it, there was this... Back when it was called Rhapsody, there were a couple of developer betas that used the old Platinum UI interface, which were and they were kind of fascinating builds, uh, you know, because they were super fast. It, it was really an exciting time to be a Mac user. You know, it's like 1999, and there's like Rhapsody developer beta two, and it looked like Mac OS nine, except it was a little slightly different platinum interface but it was super fast it was very snappy but it was like but this isn't what we're going to ship you know wait wait for it and then they showed us aqua and aqua was way more eye candy right all the everything was anti-aliased instead of bitmap fonts and and there were shadows and transparency and all this stuff and it looked way fancier but it was slow, right? I mean, that was the early era of Mac OS X was that even on like the fastest hardware you could buy from Apple, it was kind of a slow interface because they so emphasized the visual effects, you know, the shadows and the transparency and the animation, right? The animation was a huge part of it. Everything that could be animated was animated. You hit Command S and the save sheet drops out of the top of the menu and comes down. And if you hit the cancel button, it doesn't just disappear. It slides back up into the top of the thing. And all these years later, effectively almost 20 years later, and, and the, if anything, iOS took the animated aspect of the interface and, and went even further with it. And I, I think it was so important to the way that people could just look at the original iPhone 10 years ago and just get it was the way that – Almost most of the major apps in the in iOS on the iPhone kind of work in a column view sort of way, where this column view metaphor that just take it from the Finder, where at the top level it's on the left, and you drill into a folder and it fills in to the right as you keep going down in the hierarchy. Um, most iOS apps work like that. Like you're in Mail and you see a list of accounts and you tap one of your accounts and then it slides over to the left and then you got your inbox for that account and it has a bunch of messages and you tap on a message and it slides over to the left and now you see the message and you keep you know but the actual animation gives you a mental layout of the app and you you kind of understand when you're in mail or messages or even in the settings app that you're in this sort of left to right the deeper you go the further right you are and you just keep going back to the left to go back to the root level uh, 
the animation reiterates all that. To have this thing now in a Mac in 2019 where the view doesn't animate at all, you just suddenly snap between the minimum height requirement of the window and it just snaps to be full screen with no animation at all. It feels like the most unappley experience I can imagine. It really just, it, you know, I get it. I see what's going on. I, I understand that it's because I made the window too small and now it's at this point where the, the, the little sheet is going to be full width instead of looking like a fake window in a window. But the fact that there's no animation between it, even though it's, it's not a good experience overall anyway, but the lack of animation just feels so anti-Apple. It's, it's really hard to believe that it came out of Apple. I, I, I'm baffled by these apps. Yeah, the one that I've noticed, and again, it's beta, it's early, but the podcast app on on uh, Catalina, so that's um, uh, that's that's a, a Catalyst app, and uh, you remember back in the early days of OS ten, the interface convention for get, showing more information was these drawers that slid out, right. And it was a animated process, and they had a lot of Chrome on them. And, and we've gone away from that. You, they, you don't do that anymore. But I was thinking about them because in podcasts, if you want uh, to see uh, – and this is actually true. Actually, this is true in the music app, too. So I should use the music app as an example, even though that's not Catalyst because it's using this, like, design language that Apple has worked on that seems to be very influenced by iOS. Um, in the music app, up next and lyrics when you show them – in iTunes, they pop. It's a popover yeah. um, that comes down from the center of the screen, and it pops over, and it's like a temporary view. In music, it's this drawer that slides <laughs> out from the inside of I the window <sighs> over the UI, and the UI stays active, but is a, is is covered partially by this thing. And I thought, okay, one, I see why you would need this on a full screen app, right. like you would have on an iPad. But two, it's a drawer and it's going the wrong way, right? Like, right. it's like, why would right. you build an interface? And I know that the answer is because this was built, we're using iPad uh, conventions here. Yeah. And, and even though this is not a Catalyst app, we're using those conventions so that it feels like the music app on the iPad. But on a Mac, I look at it and I just think, no, this is yeah. wrong. Like, you, I've got I got a 27 inch monitor here. Right. Why are you covering my content <laughs> to show me the, right. uh, what's up next or the lyrics? It doesn't make any sense from that right. perspective. It's a choice made for good reason on a different platform and then applied to this platform. Uh, kind of like I, I don't know, consistency over usability. I guess is what's happening there. It's frustrating. It's really frustrating. Yeah, because it it, it it's a perfect example. I know exactly which thing you're talking about you there's a button right above it and it, it it is animated and it looks nice but on the ipad typically your music app is full screen it is the the size of your ipad is the size of your music app or the podcast app if that's what you're listening yeah to. and certainly even if you did a split view or something like that right. it, it, there there's no concept on ios of a window kind of like extruding into yes. another space that's right. just so, not doesn't happen exactly even if you're in split view it you the app is given you know okay you've got a two-thirds of the size of the screen square or you've got a one-third over on the right you know column you can't grow a, as the app 
you you've got this space. So if you want to show more, it needs to overlap the content. But on the Mac, a, a roughly and I'm st- I'm talking to you on a on a 5K iMac and I'm holding up my iPad right in front of it and a roughly iPad sized window is a perfect window size for the music app or the podcast app on the Mac if you have a nice big uh, like iMac display perfectly reasonable size but if you need to show more there's plenty of room on the screen to show more yeah. <laughs> off to the side Instead of overlapping the content, it it's it seems like a very strange concession for the Mac to make in the in the grounds of consistency. Right, right, because it's a cross. I mean, this is the problem with cross-platform interfaces: is every platform is different and has unique characteristics. And I I wouldn't want some sort of weird drawer exclusion exclusion or, sorry right. extrusion thing on my iPad. That would make no sense. But on the Mac, I look at it and I, I immediately like I I used this app for the first time the other day, and I immediately was like, whoa. Like, why is that happening? And it's not like I haven't seen, like, the music app in iOS 13 puts up this little slide over thing for now playing, and it literally grays out the rest of the interface, and you can't interact with it, but it's not actually a slide over, and you can't move it. It just sits, you can dismiss it, and that's all you can do. And I had that same thought of sort of like, is this what we want? Is these weird things that float on top of other things and block them? But at least in the iPad, I can understand some of the rationale. On the Mac, the only rationale is, well, that's how we do it on the iPad. And there, so there's a weird thing. Uh, I, I tweeted about it. I tweeted this movie I recorded with the home thing. Uh, and uh, the absolute genius, Stephen Trouton Smith, who has spent more time deconstructing how these apps work before they were even announced. Yeah. Like he knows as much about how these Marzipan apps used to work and how they work now as anybody outside Apple. Uh, and he said something. I can't find the tweet right now, but said something to the effect that the uh, podcast app seemingly is written using some catalyst features that aren't publicly available. Yeah. So like the fact that the, like the catalyst app is, or or the podcast app is the saving grace of catalyst so far, because you can look at it and say, well, this feels like a Mac app. There's some, there's some, you know, some things that are a little off, but they're at the edges. They're truly edge cases of the interface. Sure. And overall, it seems this seems like a real Mac app, and it doesn't feel like an iOS app running although, on a Mac. Although some of that is that what I, what we were talking about a second ago. Some of that is that you compare it to music, and you which is which is not Catalyst, and you compare it to TV, which is not Catalyst. Right. But they've got new interfaces that are the same interface right. that podcast does. So right. some of it is moving the goalposts a little right. bit, right? Right, because th- some they've of, right. they've matched the the. You know, the podcast app has some superpowers, seemingly, to be more Mac-like. And right. it, and then the other side, it seems like they t- took the music and TV apps and made them a little less Mac-like to, to even it up. To, to just get, the, get them to be a little bit closer together, yeah. Because they yeah. do feel of a kind, right? They're all from yeah. the same sort of design language. They're all trying to hit the same target, even though yeah. one of them is Catalyst. But and one, they're and clearly, yeah, they're clearly from the same team. They're clearly from the iTunes team, Uh I, I have to mention this. If I didn't mention it, I would kill myself after the show for not mentioning it. But I love – so we know Apple effectively admitted, I think – it certainly is true. I think they more or less admitted, though, that what they did is they took the old iTunes app and and 
took out a bunch of features, redid yep. the interface. But it's not just the music app. It's also the TV app. So effectively, right. we've got two versions of iTunes now on Catalina. Yeah, plus like, a bunch of code that runs in the Finder now. So right. <laughs> right. Finder is right. iTunes now, too, a little bit. Right. So they Yeah. So what we used to know is iTunes for, uh, geez, what, uh, 18 years, you know, right? 2001? Right, it had oh, it's, to be 2001. It was, it was before the iPod, iPod actually. Is right, iTunes right. Came iTunes out. came so, yeah. first. So, so it's yeah. like almost 20 years, yeah. Yeah, sure. so 20 years of iTunes. They've taken the code and they've they've forked it once to make the music app. And it has all the music features that we used to know from iTunes. They forked it a second time to make the TV app, which is interesting to me because it seems to me like the TV app maybe could have gone the podcast route. And I'm very curious why... They decided to do, you know, do it the way they did. Me too. I, my theory is that there are projects at Apple that have been in the works for long enough that they had already gone down the path of building a Mac version. Right. And so why throw that work out when you already did it? Right. So that, that's, that's my theory is like the TV app, they were already working on it. And then Catalyst comes along and they're like, well... Hmm. You know, you're still working on Catalyst. We're already down this path. We'll just keep da- going down the path. Yeah, and then they took all of the device management stuff and put it in the Finder, which is yes. brilliant, right? Doesn't that seem like the way it should have been? Like, I, I don't yep. know why I never I, – I wish – as soon as I saw that in the keynote and they put that in the Finder, so, like, if you want to manually manage uh, your, the backup of your iPhone or your iPad or whatever device you, you connect to your Mac – you do it in the Finder now, and it, that seems so perfect. It's like, yeah, that's the, that's exactly the job of the Finder. That would be, yeah, that's great. It breaks the metaphor a little bit because the Finder windows are supposed to have like files in them, and now suddenly there's a device management window yeah, in the Finder. But, it, but on another level, I agree with you because like I've always been frustrated that you couldn't just plug in an iPhone to a Mac and and drag files onto it. Right. And it just y- seems you have to right. go to iTunes. And do I mean, it. so now it, you can. Yeah, without going into a four-hour, we should. Uh, add John Syracuse to the show. <laughs> digression, digression on the <laughs> the user interface of the Finder in the Mac OS X era, vis-a-vis the classic Finder and all that. <laughs> Again, it would easily be four hours. Mm. We would have to get John Syracuse. Given the OS X Finder, it it just seems right that a device you plug in should show up in the Finder sidebar. Yeah, uh, it's it's really. For sure, yeah. Well, it certainly makes more sense than a weird button that grows out of the iTunes title bar, right? Like, right. what in is your that? music playing app? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But you're right. The TV app is uh, is iTunes. Like, it's the TV yep. parts of iTunes that they've just uh, TV and movie parts of iTunes that right. they've taken and added some other stuff to. So the thing I want to mention, and I I just love it, and I really almost wonder whether they're trolling us at this point. Is the fact you know what I'm going to say, right? The preferences window is st- still a modal dialogue. Of course. of course. So music and TV have modal dialogues for preferences. And I think most people listening to the show already know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about and why it's a little antiquated. But if you don't, just it, the basic idea is that a modal dialogue is one that when you open it up in an app, you can't do in anything in any other windows until you cancel or okay the the app so when you open preferences and this is all itunes has always been this way going back to what before mac os 10 when it was a, a classic app is you'd open the preferences and you could change 
settings, but then there's an OK and cancel button at the bottom. So you could you could hit cancel, and then any of the changes you made wouldn't actually be registered because you canceled it instead of OKing it. And in the 90s, maybe even going back to the 80s, that was a very common. I mean, the the further back in time you go in Mac history, the more stuff was modal as opposed to non-modal, where it would come up and you had to do it or cancel it right then and there, and you couldn't do anything else until you did. Yeah, everything else stopped while you were right. in there. By the uh, way, I have a little real-time follow-up. They bought I they bought SoundJam MP in 2000, but the first version of iTunes actually did come out in 2001. It was January 2001, ah, so it was before Mac the World. iPod, right. but not a lot before the iPod. Right. Only, Mac, only so you know, a little World, less than a year. MacWorld Expo... 2001. Yeah, 10 months before the iPad or iPod shipped. Yep, yep. Um, that yeah, was that a lot good. of email, so you know, <laughs> there it is. The fact that iTunes stuck with a modal preferences dialogue and I believe it's the last <sighs> app Apple has with a modal. I mean, maybe there's some kind of obscure app is somewhere in in slash applications slash utilities. Maybe some of those still have it. I don't know. But in terms of the ones that would ever even vaguely have a chance of being demoed in a keynote, iTunes was far and away the last app Apple made with a modal preferences dialog. And they clearly did a, a complete UI reskinning of the you know the 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 brand new Catalina music and TV apps don't look like iTunes on on Mojave. Right. The fact that they left the preferences as a modal dialog box, I love it. I I <laughs> I, I, ask, I you know what I mean like I feel like we've circled the globe on this and we've gone away from like complaining like isn't it time for the iTunes preferences not to be modal and just, you know, <laughs> just it's out, it's literally outlasted iTunes now. <laughs> The preferences box has outlasted its app. I, at this point, I'm actually so charmed that they kept it as a modal dialog box. And then, of course, I checked podcasts, and podcasts is not modal. You know, the podcast, which is a Catalyst app, but looks a lot like the music app and the TV app, not modal. Uh, <laughs> I, I just it charms me now at this point, and I really, if anybody at Apple is on these teams and. I, I would love to know the story behind this because technically it can't be that hard. <laughs> it can't be that there are – with all of the work that went into to splitting the music and TV apps from what was iTunes, surely part of that work could have been making the preferences non-modal. I feel like it's a deliberate choice at this point, and I kind of love it. When you talk about coming all the way back around the world, I will point out that automation uh, box that we were talking about in the home app. I mean it, that there we're back there now because that is literally a modal. It blocks yep. out everything else that happens in the home app while it's open. <laughs> so you know the modal modal dialogues are back in style, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so bad. and what if you never left? Well, <laughs> iTunes never left, and now it's it's like you know 80s comes back in style, 90s comes back in yeah. style. Wait long enough, and you'll be back in style. I absolutely love it that it's uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you running i'm I'm curious what betas you're running personally so i um I had installed the uh Catalina beta on a an external s s d that's sort of my first step because with the Mac. You don't have to commit your whole device to being on it. You can you can use a partition or an SSD. Marco 
uh, Arment used realized that APFS will let you partition things, and I realized I've just been so trained from HFS to not ever ever yep. touch the partitions of my <laughs> internal hard drive that I just have a I have a Samsung SSD that is so small that I can like tuck it in the back of my IMAX uh, uh, like little uh, Visa mount, and uh, it's like it's not even there. Uh, so I, I can reboot into into Catalina, and that's step one. Step two will be that I'll move, but step one I reboot into Catalina. And it means I can like attach that drive to my wife's MacBook Air when she's at work, and I can boot into it on that one and use it as reference. And then for iOS, I have like test devices that are, have been running it, but yesterday I put it on my iPad, um, mostly at the urging of Federico Fatici, who uh, was talking about this on a podcast and basically said, "Well, if you're a regular person, you shouldn't install this beta yet. But if you're a uh, if you write about this for a living, you should probably do it." And I thought, "Oh, he's talking to me." So <laughs> I did it. And it's you know, it's you know, once you go over the beta, I, I firmly believe that you have to use the beta on your main system to really understand anything, right? Like because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just kind of noodling around in an yeah. empty shell, and then you leave it, and like you don't. I've already learned in 12 hours or 18 hours of using it on my main iPad. I've already learned like a dozen things I didn't notice in the last week and a half because it's my iPad now. So at some point you got to cut over, but like I'm going on vacation next week and I'm not going to put it on my phone, like no, no way. And, but on the iPad, I figure because yeah. I do need to immerse myself in this stuff, I need to get there. And I feel like in the next few weeks, I will probably do a thing where I'm, here's, let, let me know what you think about this strategy. What I'm thinking of doing is I've got, I bought a, um, so this external drive is a terabyte, and my internal iMac Pro drive is a terabyte. So what I'm thinking is cloning my existing Mojave onto that external drive and then upgrading to Catalina because that'll let me live with Catalina but also, like, have a place I can retreat to um, for things like doing podcasts where you don't want your apps to crash and stuff yeah. like that. That sounds a lot like my strategy. Let's – uh Let's take a third break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the episode, another one of my very favorite companies, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon makes, uh, they call men's essentials. Look, T-shirts, underwear, socks, that sort of thing. Uh, And they're just super high quality. They are the nicest stuff I have ever owned. Uh, I, I love it. I'm wearing them right now. I got a pair of Mack Weldon underwear on. Whoever thought I'd grow up and uh, part of my life would be to tell everybody what kind of underwear I've got. Well, that's where I am. I love Mack Weldon products. Uh, they started from scratch. They've looked at this market, and this is why I like this company. They engineered everything, even their own fabrics. They start from the ground up. They make their own fabrics. They make their own designs. They control all of the stitching and the sizing, and they truly believe that the difference is in the details, and they obsess over every stitch and seam until they've reached their definition of perfect for products like underwear, T-shirts, socks. I get almost guaranteed that whatever you're wearing right now as you listen to this, Mack Weldon products are better than what you have on right now. Great stuff. I love them. Uh, and they've even got... Uh, their silver line is made of naturally anti-microbial fabrics. That means they eliminate odor. Sounds like BS. You think like, ah, uh, you know, how can you make a t-shirt that uh, stays odor-free as opposed to another thing? I don't know how they do it, but it works. It's great stuff. Love them for summer. That silver line of products, especially the shirts, 
absolutely terrific for hot weather. Super comfortable, super stylish. Anything you could ask for in these products, Mac Weldon stuff is great. And the ordering process is great. They have a wonderful website. Once you're, they know what you've got. So like, you know, stuff like underwear and socks, you kind of have to reorder every year or so. Uh, they remember what you've got. You can remember what you like. Just reorder the stuff that you already like. Really, just a great shopping experience. Uh, I like everything they have. I like their t-shirts, like their underwear, like their socks. And they have a special offer for listeners of the talk show. 20% off your first order. 20% by going to MacWeldon.com and enter the code TALKSHOW. No the, just talk show at checkout. And you'll save 20% off your first order. Absolutely love their products. And uh, glad they're still a sponsor of the show. MacWeldon.com. And remember that code, talk show. Uh, what were we talking about before the break? Beta strategies. Ah, beta strategies. That's exactly right. So I feel like everybody in our racket has these exact same Samsung drives, right? Everybody. Yep. The, it's the Samsung T5. I'm looking at it right now. I've got like three of them connected to my iMac right now. So I've got one for Catalina. Got my time machine is on one. Uh-huh. I have a two gigabyte, I, two terabyte one for storage. I uh, just bought another one for time machine because I realized I was backing up time machine to my server over my network, and that because it's a a RAID, it's actually kind of slow. And I thought, why why do I not just have an SSD tucked behind my iMac for backup? So now I've got two of those guys, all, but they're great. All things considered, I don't, I I just don't like Samsung as a company. I don't like their television yep. sets. I certainly don't want their phones. Don't really like their computers. I there's a you know I, I just not a fan of the company. But you know they make good SSDs, and I think that their portable these T5 portable SSDs are one of the best products I've ever had in my life. And it's funny because like I've been buying them for at least a year, a couple of years now. They're, they're so much cheaper than they used to be. It is absolutely. <laughs> ludicrous like i went to amazon i bought a new one just to install catalina and it was like i got like a two terabyte drive for like one third of the price that i bought a one terabyte for like 18 months ago it was it's absolutely ridiculous how how cheap they're getting and they're just these tiny little things with one USB-C port in the back they come with both cables that you would possibly want which is USB-C to USB-C and USB-A to USB-C. So you can connect it to, they have nice little cables that are, to me, a very smart length. They're not too super short, but they're not like six foot, you know. Uh, it, one of the great products uh, that I could recommend are these Samsung T5 drives. I did the same thing. I've got Catalina running on an external SSD. I did the same thing as you, where I, there was no way <laughs> as a, you know, again, I, I admit technically, I think we're wrong and Marco's probably the right way that we should just trust APFS and, you know, trust that you can repartition your internal uh, drive with APFS and have a safe thing where you can put Catalina. But I, I'm so old school that I not only install it on an external SSD, I unmount my internal hard drive. I reboot, you know. It, yeah. One of the weird things about installing Catalina is you couldn't just install it on a blank drive. You had to start with Mojave. I think you went through the same thing. I think you were yeah. talking about this on a podcast. Yeah, I installed Mojave and then I installed <laughs> right. the you Catalina had to, over it. No, you Although had Marco, to. Marco says that you can 
download the Mojave in, or the Catalina installer and then point it at a blank yeah, drive and it will actually do it. But I, I decided I was yeah. not going to risk <laughs> getting my Mac in a position where it was going to try to install Catalina on itself because the, that would be disaster. So we've, I, yeah, we've been trained by the right, Mac for 20 years to yeah. not do that. We've just got terrible, terrible battle scars where we're just like, whatever yeah. you say, you know, like if they tell you that you're supposed to stand on one leg and hop up and down as the installer runs, I would do it. I you think know. that's how you zap the PRAM. Yeah, you I would yeah. <laughs> zap your PRAM and hold down uh, six buttons and on your keyboard yeah. as it restarts. And just hope that it all yeah. works. So uh, yeah, yeah, you use an external drive, and it's like, and like you said, in 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 the racket we're in, you got to have you you got to do it right, but you got to have strategies for it right. because you are going to have an unstable system, yeah. like fundam- even a good beta, it is an unstable system. I had that happen. I want to say three summers ago, I finally cut over to the beta and realized that all of my podcasting broke when I did it. (laughs) So I spent like two months where every time... Uh, somebody wanted me to do a podcast. I I said okay, I will uh, be back in five minutes after I reboot because I had I ended up with an external drive that was just a generic version of the shipping operating system that would actually work with podcasting. So that's the, that's the problem of having your test machine be your production machine, as it were. Is that you're just uh, yeah. At some point, you got to use the betas though because you got to write about them. Yeah. Um, but if they break part of your like, if I couldn't write articles, if like BB Edit didn't open in the beta. That would be really bad, and I would have to have like another system to use to write my article because uh, you can't, you know, you you got to use the beta stuff, but you've also got to work. So I've got uh, I've got Catalina on an external drive, but I'm as as we podcast talking to you from uh, Mojave because I'm not going to pod. Right. Risk, I'm not going to risk that. The, you did that. You're like, I'll be back in a minute. Yeah, I got to reboot into Mojave so that we can do a podcast. And I've got iOS 13 or AKA iPad uh, OS 13 right. running on a, on my year old iPhone 10 and and a, oh, okay. a Mac Mini or iPad Mini. I mean, not right. Mac Mini. So not your actual iOS devices, but. right? But I'm thinking I. The the one I'm I'm almost certainly going to upgrade first before we start our family vacations is I think I'm going to put iPad OS on on my main iPad because yeah. uh, a I don't it, it if it gets buggy there's no scenario where that really adversely affects me I mean maybe there'd be a third party app I don't know that that I would wish worked but didn't but I, it it's the device that I can get by with in bugginess the most. Um, I like I I feel like uh, you know I know they had this weird warning this year like they called it thrill seekers you know and they, they yeah. <laughs> kind of made you jump through extra hoops to get the first betas of the iOS you know you had to connect to Xcode you couldn't just download a, a profile uh, and restart and do a software update on the device you kind of had to use a Mac I I I find that. The on the iPhone, it's pretty stable. I I, I haven't really seen anything. I, I'm probably not going to put it on my main phone before we start going on vacations next month. But it seems like I could. I don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean, it doesn't seem disastrous, right? Like you always have to worry that the next beta will have a terrible bug, and you'll update I, to that one, and suddenly you'll be in their, trouble. But their, their thrill seeker warning really war- turned me off. I was like, holy shit, this is. <laughs> This must be really buggy, but it it seems usable. What what are you thinking about dark mode on iOS? 
I am much more interested in dark mode on iOS than I am on the Mac, to be honest. Like, I tried dark mode on Mojave, and it's a little bit better now that Safari has dark mode support and websites are start of, sort of starting to come around to the idea that you might want to build in a dark mode. Um, the I wondered, so maybe Daring Fireball, Fireball needs like a light mode or something. I don't yeah, know what don't happens know. then, but you're already kind of doing dark mode, so it's okay. Um, but on, on the iOS devices, especially like on the iPhone, like I already am using the dark interface in a lot of my apps because they look really good on the OLED screen. And um, on the iPad, somewhat too. So I I feel like I'm probably going to use dark mode a lot more on iOS than on on Mojave. But what about you? I I think it it works better on iOS. So I think it's it's interesting. Like I, I was just saying to you earlier in the show, where in years past, and dark mode is a perfect example of this, where it. it just seems like apple can't do it all at once it can't say okay all of our platforms now have dark mode it was you know dark mode's a perfect example where tv os had it and then um, mac got it and now ios gets it but it seems like ios is the platform where people really wanted it i know people cheered for it with the mac but the cheers that it got in the keynote even though it was widely expected the rumors were super rampant that you know this is the year ios was going to get dark mode but man when when they when craig federighi announced it the crowd went nuts i mean that's it was absolutely bonkers <laughs> i mean if if there was anything that competed with it, it was when they announced the ps4 controller for apple apple tv um i think it works so much better on ios than mac because of the fact that ios doesn't have a window windowing system it has this either full screen apps or right. tiled apps and the thing on the mac i i, I honestly uh, i mean my eyes are bad and and weird in a bunch of ways but on the mac i honestly can't get how people run everything in dark mode i've been running bb edit in dark mode effectively dark mode for years like i have a dark background very dark gray with with light colored you know uh, sure. Colors for the text. And in recent years, BB Edit has detected that. And if you have a dark theme, it also shows you a dark interface, whether, you know, even on older versions of macOS. Um, but having one app in dark mode to make it jump out on my screen full of tiled windows from a bunch of apps is. Uh, different to me than having very different to me than having everything in dark mode and the way that you just don't see the three-dimensionality in dark mode as well because it's tough because how do you show a shadow right like in in light mode on mac when you have one window in front of another the one that's in front casts a shadow behind it um the fact that ios doesn't have to worry about that makes it work way better and there are some interesting touches that apple has done that as you go into a view hierarchy and and something pops up it gets a little bit lighter um but because they don't overlap the way that windows on the mac by definition have to be able to overlap i think it works way better yeah yeah it's it's um 
I think there's context too. Like I'm, I mean, the fact is I use my Mac mostly during the day and uh, the, the brightness doesn't bother me. And I, I use my iPhone often in darker circumstances and it's also got the OLED screen. I don't know. I mean, the nice thing about it, it's personal preference. Honestly, the Safari thing for me is huge because mm-hmm. apps have been updated to support dark themes, but then you go to a web page and it just blasts you with yeah. white background and black text. And it's, terrible like enough for me to be like no 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 i can't i can't look at the world this way and i'll just go back to the light theme on mojave so it's it's getting better and i feel like once ios is supporting dark themes all the web developers are going to be like look we really need to do this because now everybody's using their iphone in dark mode and there it also i mean it's on windows i i I don't know if it's currently on android but i have no doubt that they will support it as well it's and there are web standards to support it and that that's the thing is I think dark mode is good when everybody's on board with dark mode. The problem yeah. is that if you have, as long as you have outliers, it's like, it's just like, oh, this is terrible. Get me out of here. And and so I haven't used it on my Mac at all. It's kind of interesting too, though, for me, because I, uh, there are certain apps that have always been white background with colors in the front, like messages. I mean, messages goes back to when it was called iChat, right? And it has sort of had the same interface. I mean, the only the only big difference between today's messages and iChat from 20 years ago is that they don't use the Aqua-style 3D bubble effect on the text bubbles, right? right. It's, it's always been a light, white background app. Mail has always been a white background app. Um, so looking at those apps when I'm running my iPhone or the iPad in dark mode, it, at first it is just like bizarre. It is like, I can't believe that messages has a black background, but it, it doesn't take long to get used to it. I, I, I kind of like it. And then with mail, I realized that it really kind of harkens back to even earlier, like go back to like the early nineties when I would connect to mail and it was always through a terminal window and it was a black background with white text. It was like, Hmm, mail, mail seems kind of natural with white text on a black background. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh although even there, like with mail, there is HTML mail, so you end up with those things where yeah. it looks yep. it looks exactly. bad and then because it just, it's misrendered and yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're like going through messages like this one, it looks good, looks good, and then you, you pop one up that's like HTML formatted and it's white and it's like, ah <laughs> who invited you to this party? This is this <laughs> looks terrible. Yeah. Uh, the other but there's other things though that I think are a little bit more complicated like i get it it's a weird feature in my opinion i mean like i said just a couple minutes ago the enthusiasm that people have for it is almost off the charts but there is something to be said for having a a a unified look the standard interface is a white background with black text and then sometimes we'll go to a black background with white text uh for certain contexts and it it informs you. So the one that I that 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 bothers me in this regard is photos. Is the standard photos interface has always been a white background, the and then you go into edit mode on a photo and it turns black. And then you know you're in edit mode. And now that we you could have a dark background at the beginning, you kind of lose that instantaneous, hey, I know whether I'm in browse mode or edit mode because whether the interface is white or black. And I don't know what the solution to that is. 
Like I, I kind of feel like that's a, a casualty of, of supporting dark mode is that you kind of lose this instantaneous, Hey, you know, this is a special mode where we switch to a black background. You're right. Right. Because they, there's that whenever you edit it, it switches like that. Yeah. I don't know. And do, do you invert that? I mean, this is, I, I joked about like creating the light mode version of daring fireball, but I do think right. that is a legitimate question, yeah. which is like, um, the I, I was being snarky, but I'm also kind of serious. They when they went to Logic Pro 10 from Logic Pro version nine, they remade it from this kind of very gray platinum interface mm-hmm. to an interface that's a dark interface. And they said, you know, we have a lot of people working, audio engineers working in windowless rooms, and th- like it was too much. And it's like it was sort of the argument for dark mode. But my question when they announced this last year was, okay, when can we expect a light mode for Logic? Right? Yeah. Because it, it's if you're letting me choose and you're app currently is dark should you not now do a light version for me if i prefer light interfaces and i you know not a lot of people are paying attention to that but i think it's legitimate like what do you do when you edit a photo in photos now that you're in the dark mode how can you indicate and you've you've seen apple's written about it and developers have written about it the issues of like how do you differentiate a floating window when you used to differentiate it by casting a shadow but now there's nowhere to cast the shadow because it's dark like there are, you know, it's more complicated than you'd think to just go into dark mode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one that I was very curious to see was the Apple Watch app on iPhone, which has always had a dark interface. Uh, not quite black, but that's why they don't call it black mode. It's dark mode. And I thought, well, what are they going to do with the Apple Watch interface? Is When you go into dark mode, is the Apple Watch app going to go light? Because it's the the point is to make it the inverse of what's regular, but instead it just stays dark. It's like the Apple Watch app doesn't doesn't make any it doesn't make any difference whether your system is dark mode or not. That's the answer that they came up with. But it's still it it uh, is that the right answer? In a way, it seems like it should it should be light, right? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, it's not always going to be that the right answer is the inverse, but it's certainly like you have to every time you do something like this, you have to ask yourself that question of like, well, what do I do here to indicate like with the drop shadow? It's like you don't have to have a like a, a drop glow or something, right. but you do need to invent some way to indicate that thing that you can't indicate anymore using the darkness because the darkness is now something else. Yeah, I don't know. I like it more than I thought I would. I, I'm running it on my iPad with the setting to have it turn on automatically at night. And so at nighttime it's dark and in the daytime it's day, uh, which I've actually been running on my Apple TV for years, I believe. Mm-hmm. And on Apple TV in particular, I, I go months with even forgetting that I have that set because it seems so natural for it to be light in the daytime and dark at nighttime. Uh, on the iPhone, it's a little bit more glaring because you you can't miss it when you're in messages and it's a dark background, but uh, but I dig it. I dig it more than I do on my Mac. I, I, I really can't see using it system-wide on my Mac. But on the iPhone, I, I can definitely see it. Uh, all right. What else is on your agenda as a high-level high WWDC follow-up type thing? We can talk about the Mac Pro and the Pro Display XDR. Yeah. I mean, it, it is – I think they're worth talking about. Um Although on one level, I feel like giving them more oxygen just kind of like repeats the problem that we've had, which is so much attention is given to the Mac Pro and now to this display that is out of whack with how 
with with how many people will ever use them. And this is not new. That's the thing that gets me is it's like the the trash can Mac Pro. It's been so long that people have forgotten Apple's strategy about the Mac Pro. But like there is a real continuum from the time when most power users used a Power Mac and the time when most power users use an iMac. Yeah. The iMac used to be a consumer Mac. It is now a the mainstream Mac. And that you could start that continuum wherever you want when the G5 came out, when the when the first Mac Pro came out, but like Apple has been gradually ratcheting up the power of their high-end system and making it further and further out of whack from what like any normal person would want because they only want to serve this little narrow group and it's very profitable but a very small niche they've been doing that for years now and i think the big change is that you know after the little uh digression with the trash can you know we're back to this new cheese grater and like there are the people out there who who really expected that this thing would start at $2000 and that then you could build it up to what everybody else wants but the truth is to make the ultra high end computer that some industries need you need to bake in a bunch of stuff that does not allow you to sell a $2000 configuration and apple has so many macs already that fulfill the people who are down here maybe not in their desire to have slots or whatever it is that's motivating them but like uh you know that that is already fulfilled that they need to build this thing to fulfill the dreams of the people at the at the re- real high end. So I don't think it's a change in Apple's strategy at all, but it's also funny because we all end up talking about it. It becomes like a symbol yeah. of the platform, even though it is going to be bought and used by the tiniest fraction of Mac users and then the display by a tiny fraction of those people. <laughs> right. It there is, <laughs> there is a part of me that recognizes that this whole thing, like as we complain about it in the commentariat, you know, the Apple commentariat class, that within Apple, there must be people who are like, <laughs> what can we do to please you people? Like you wanted us to make high-end mac hardware we've given you the highest end mac hardware we could even conceive of and now you're going to complain of course we're going to complain that's what we do but yeah um i it is i i think it's great overall and i'm so happy that this machine is so high end because it it matches Apple's rhetoric over the last 2 years ever since the the sort of round table all right we're going to admit we made a mistake with the trash can here's where we're going forward what they said matches what they've shipped since then the iMac Pro is truly a phenomenal computer and is almost certainly the pro computer for most people who want a pro desktop um the Mac Mini, which they didn't even talk about in advance, has seen a really serious upgrade. And everybody who's interested in the Mac Mini seems very, very happy with where it went last year. Uh, From the base end configs to the higher end configs. And the new Mac Pro is truly a workstation. It is absolutely in that classic, uh, like, Silicon Graphics, uh, Sun, you know, from the 90s, those companies... Unix workstation for true power users who really need the most computing that you can put underneath a desk. It it truly is there. They've pushed the state of the art in hardware engineering forward with the uh, expansion capabilities and the modularity. It, it's really a fascinating device from a hardware perspective. 
but like you said, it's, it is not for most people. It's absolutely not for me. I'm fascinated by the device and it is, it is the most interesting Macintosh that I have no interest in buying whatsoever. Like it takes me back to like, like 1990, you know, and like 1991, like when I first went to school and, or university and, and had to get a Mac and it was like, there were the Macs that were possible that I would get. And, you know, like the LC and the SE 30, and then, of course, there was the 2FX, which is the one, of course, I wanted. But it was like, I think the Mac 2FX retailed in 1990 and 91 for around like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 in their, in 1990 yeah. dollars. <laughs> and yeah, it was, was not, not for regular people. There was one kid at Drexel who had one. He had a 2FX. He was obviously came from a family with money. And mm-hmm. remember the game Spectre? Yeah, yeah, sure. Tank game. Yeah, it was a uh, 3D tank game. And everybody who knew anything knew that you would put it in outline view instead of fully rasterizing the the panels because it, you'd get a higher frame rate and you know, you'd have better network performance. But the kid who had the 2FX, I, I forget his name, but he was also a Spectre. He cheated at Spectre. He like he used res edit to you. You could use oh, res edit to hack your specs. You know, it was like I think you had like a limit of. Uh, you had like points to assign to like speed shields and firepower. And so you, you'd have to balance it. And he like, it, it was, it was very clear that he had hacked his version. He was a cheater, which <laughs> I mean, why would you cheat? You already have a two effects. Why would you do yeah, it? I always put a bad, you're already winning. Yeah. Come on. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I wanted a two effects. I would have loved to, if I had, if money were no object at, as a freshman in college, which is obviously an oxymoron, I would have had one. Right, I wanted a two FX. It would have run Spectre better. It would have run everything better. At this point in my life, I have no need for the current Mac Pro. I mean, it's just overkill for me. I mean, I'm still on a 2014 iMac 5K, which I never get slow for me. If I got yeah. a new machine, I'd probably get the iMac Pro, just because I love yeah. I, I love the design. I can't see why I how I could possibly justify anything more than an iMac Pro. Um, yeah, I have the iMac Pro, and I only justify it because I have all of these podcast audio files that I process using these kind of like high end plugins. Where it takes, you know, I'm I'm denoising four hours right. of audio for five people, and it I was like, oh, that's actually enough reason for me to get an iMac Pro. But even then, I'm pushing it, and certainly the 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 Mac Pro, there's there's no reason, and that's okay. And I think, you know, part of the psychology of fandom is why isn't this for me like Mm -hmm. fans of anything want everything to be and and you see it in weird ways like i was saying i was reading about how they're doing a couple of animated uh star trek shows and it's the first time since the 70s that they've done an animated star trek show when i was the target audience for that animated star trek show back in the 70s and i know there's an undercurrent of fans who are like "Mm, why are they making a show for kids i'm not a kid and like i feel that way about uh apple fans to a certain degree too where there's this feeling of like outrage that the mac pro isn't designed for them and it's like it's not just like the macbook people were outraged about that 12 inch macbook because it wasn't powerful enough and it's like dude it's not for you like my daughter has one and she loves it but it's not for everybody and that's okay but you know i i do think there's this feeling like well but i'm a power user i'm very serious the high-end mac pro should appeal to me and the truth is it doesn't make sense for almost anybody and that's okay it's not meant to well and then it's exacerbated by the pro display xdr yeah like uh, you you went in that room right like there's that they they did a room across the street from the convention (sighs) center where they had the they had uh, it was a great it was like here is the 
5K monitor that people buy. Here is this crazy like $6,000 monitor that people try to scrape by with. That's the highest quality consumer monitor, prosumer monitor. Then here's the Pro Display XDR. And then here are these two Sony uh, (laughs) reference monitors that cost between $32,000 and $38,000. No, more. They were in the 40s. They were like 42 and 48. It was a huge sum of money, right? 42 and 48. And the one of them, the one that was. was it the OLED one or the non? I think it was the OLED one. They've they've actually discontinued already, right? Because it it it, it can the light o- goes on if it's <laughs> if it's bright for too long, it dims itself, and the light goes on. It says, right. "Nope, this is no longer a reference monitor." Yeah, it which gets is... it gets about ninety <laughs> seconds at full brightness, and then and, uh, it, it's an actual hardware light, an amber LED light on yeah. the display that comes on to warn you, hey. We've got. I can't maintain reference mode any uh, longer yeah, because I, I'm too. I'm, uh, I think I'm running too hot. I'm too hot, so I've reduced the nits, so you can't really trust this. So you you can really, and I I asked. I was like, so it, you know, in in the real world of people who are like grading footage for like a, a theatrical movie release or like a high end HBO show or something where where the color really matters, you can really only do like one shot at a time <laughs> because you the light comes on and you. Yeah, you, you can no longer trust it, and they're like, "Yeah, that's that that yeah," and that's forty eight thousand dollars. <laughs> it's so, so absolutely Apple, insane. It, it is sometimes Apple does these rigs these demo rooms up, and and sometimes you you're like, "Come on, guys, this is ridiculous," and other times you're like, "You did a great job here," and this was a great job because it was all about putting this thing in context. And I wish other people could have seen yeah. this room because it was there's the fine four K or five K display. It was garbage, right? Like right. it was so terrible. And then there was the six thousand dollar monitor. Yeah, the, it, was like, Dell, oh. it was a Dell. It was a Dell 4K display, and it was truly terrible. It Honestly, was, it, makes you wonder. It, right. it really makes you feel like they're they're just criminals for even selling it, right? For and any yet, price. you know, probably the iMac display isn't much better, but it's probably better. But not, oh yeah, not, like I see. Right? Yeah. I, I think that was the missing thing in that demo is that they should have had, if they really wanted to be fair, they would have put an iMac 5K display in there. And that, to me, is ultimately what is missing in Apple's product line is why don't they sell the 5K iMac display as a standalone display? That I I think that would have... Yeah, the two own goals really. Right. Two ways that Apple really kind of like did some bad PR. One is one is they should not have priced the monitor without the stand. I know <laughs> you need. A, I know it's a thousand dollars and you're going to get killed by it. It's just just price it. This is you've already proven right. in that room that the six thousand uh, dollar not reference display, the six the, the display with the same price as yours, right. is a joke compared to yours, which is actually looks better in most circumstances to the forty thousand dollar monitors. You you got us. You got us. Just include the monitor and raise the price. And, Don't play and say that you can order it without uh, if you want and right, save some money right. by getting the Visa mount version instead for cheaper. That's all you need to do. So that was own goal number one. Own goal number two is they're speaking, as we said earlier in this in this show, they're speaking to a developer audience with a product that's not for a developer audience. And the developers, you know, and the other and honestly, what? Ninety percent of the people who buy a Mac Pro, seventy percent of the people who buy a Mac Pro, they don't need a reference monitor. So why not come out with what everybody really wants, which is something like the iMac panel as a standalone for them, and then it will work with a Mac Mini, it would work with a MacBook Pro, it will work with a Mac Pro. You can you can say you know we can argue about whether it should be a 6K 
31 inch display like sure. the XDR or whether it should literally just be the 27 inch 5k panel that I'm looking at right now, just put it in a standalone display. I mean, and it, I know on ATP, Marco was even talking about it where they've gotten rid of the target mode for iMacs where you can just use an iMac as a standalone display, but you can get like the base model 5k iMac is like Seventeen or eighteen hundred dollars, something like that. People would buy that if you could just plug the Mac Pro into it, and you would just have a a computer you don't use on the back of it, you know. But the fact that they don't have it is is a glaring absence. Optimistically, here's what I hope, and I have no inside juice on this at all. I'm not cheating. I have no sources, no little birdies. All right. My hope is that they called this $6,000, $7,000, $8,000 with a stand display, the pro display XDR, as opposed to just calling it the pro display, because they're going to have a pro display and the pro, pro, dis- pro display or pro display HDR or maybe. HDR, maybe right. By something something like else. But the fact yeah, that it's not it, just the pro display and it is such a glaring hole in the lineup. Like there are it's, like, you it's said, not even a hole in the lineup. That's the amazing thing is if you look out there, it's a hole in the market. Yes, like, exactly. There are no there are, good uh, retina 5k no, displays it, for max. It's actually worse than it used to be because LG has discontinued the one that they had that they kind of right. made in cooperation. So the market for 5K displays is actually worse than it was because LG has discontinued it. And the only way to get the LG one, which is okay, uh, is to get like a find one that's like on the gray market because it's been discontinued. Maybe you have to get it used. Maybe somebody still has one still in stock, but it's like you can't even get a new one. The the And the PC side of the market is just not in the ballgame at all. The 5K is just not a thing in Windows world. It, you're lucky if you can get 4K. They're kind of crappy. And the people who care the most about graphics are gamers, and they don't want retina displays because they have to drive four times the pixels. They'd rather have a non-retina display that's big and like wraps around their desk or whatever. Uh, it, the, the, the market for displays has bifurcated between the Mac and PC world in a way that hasn't happened since like the eighties, you know, when the Mac was a, a black and white interface and, you know, PCs had like VGA color graphics. It, it, it's like a totally different universe. So there is no way there's nobody to go to other than Apple. If Apple doesn't make a 5k pro display, nobody's going to. And it's, it's a device that wouldn't just be great for people who want to buy a Mac pro who don't need a $7,000 reference display. It would also be great for Mac mini users. It would be great for, and and to me, the biggest market is the gazillion MacBook users, whether of any, whatever MacBook you have. But especially those MacBook Pros, right? right? But if you have a MacBook Pro and you do pro work and you want to plug it into a, a display at your desk to have a big display, they're clearly, especially the 15 inch, but even the, the current 13 inch has such powerful graphics they can easily drive a 5k display and if you're doing the sort of work that it would benefit from having a big display what are you supposed to buy to plug your computer into to me it is that coming out of wwdc it is the biggest hey 
Apple, you've done great work in the last couple of years. You've really been listening to the pro market. But here's the one thing you've got to do. Because if you don't do it, nobody is going to do it. Yeah. That, and that's the key. It's like, I'm okay. I'm okay with Apple saying, you know, this market is served. We don't need to be in it. But the problem is that this market is now not really being served. And that's a little bit like Apple... Right. I'm okay with Apple discontinuing the airport because other Wi-Fi systems are available. But imagine that there were no Wi-Fi routers other than airports, <laughs> right. and then they discontinued. Right. And you're like, wait a second, wait a second, I need my Wi-Fi. And that's and and again, I that's, understand that perhaps that product's not ready, or they think it's better timed right. with a release. If they do this right. like rumored 16-inch revised laptop thing, wouldn't it be great to have an external monitor as part of that story? I get it. And yet at the same time, this Pro Display XDR shown off in front of developers who don't want it, it's like you could have avoided the controversy here yeah. if you had had another monitor that you pre-announced, right? <laughs> but they didn't. And one of the features that the that the Pro Display XDR has that they showed off is that you can rotate it to go from portrait yeah. to land or landscape to portrait. Yeah, which to me is a very developer friendly feature because developers write code and code scrolls up and down and it doesn't go horizontally. It, it it's almost like rubbing it in your face. Like, wouldn't this be great as a developer to have this 6K display that you can rotate to go up and down so you can see more lines of code up and down? Uh, you, re you remember, I'm sure you do, the, the Radius... Uh, radius uh, full-page display on... I had one on uh, at my desk at my college newspaper, all of our page layouts. We had one two-page display uh, on a, like a Mac 2, Everything else was this portrait radius display where we did all of our page layout. That's basically how I started using a Mac I with one of those. I loved having a, yeah, back in that era in the this, early 90s, having a display yeah. that went up and down was amazing. John, and, this is why I have those crazy iPad stands now. It's <laughs> because I can actually write on my right. iPad with an external keyboard and I can put it, it in it, portrait. Right. <laughs> it's great. Uh, but to show that to developers... <laughs> And then, I know, yoink. <laughs> so uh, I really, yeah. really hope it, it all makes sense if in the bag, in their back pocket, they've already been planning on a regular pro display that costs, sure hope so. let's just say it costs $1,000. Maybe it's $1,500 because yeah, it comes I, with a $500 the stand. The, the developers <laughs> I talk to would be happy if they could pay the price of an iMac 5K right. yeah, just pay and just price. get the screen, <laughs> right. right? If they have that in their back pocket and the only reason they didn't announce it is they would they want to save it for when the Mac Pro actually ships this fall. Right. Or when that new fancy new laptop right. comes out. But, which might be the same which event. Which could be the same time. Right. Yeah. Could be the same event. <laughs> uh, that would be great. And then all will be forgiven and we'll be like, ah, we get because it. You wanted to save some good news for when people could actually take out their credit cards and buy the thing and they're excited to do it. But you also wanted to show off with this crazy, it's worth $50,000, but we're selling it for six or $7,000 yeah. Pro Display XDR. Okay, That's great. the sad truth of the Pro Display XDR is that everybody's making a big deal about that $1,000 stand and all of that. This is a piece of extremely high-end equipment almost nobody will want. And for the people who will want it, it's such a deal. It's it actually a good yes, value the, because they're going right. to stop buying forty thousand dollars. I mean, I feel I, I don't really feel bad for Sony, right. but it's like you know, Sony is sitting there going, "Oh no, like we can't start, we can't charge forty thousand dollars for a, a reference monitor anymore because Apple's selling one that's basically 
as good for six grand. Like that's, it's an amazing product. It's an amazing breakthrough. It's actually, in some ways, it strikes me as being one of the more innovative uh, breakthrough bits of hardware that Apple has done in a while. It's just in an, such an esoteric market that like, you know, when was when was the last time we talked about reference monitors for pro video on your podcast? No. Never, never, never. I didn't even know it was such a thing. A limited thing. Yeah, I didn't yeah, even no, know it was a thing. Yeah, so it's 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 brilliant. It's just it's a product that nobody actually you know outside of this very small few want. It's right. brilliant for those people, but for the rest of us, it's like where is my five K or six K display that I can put on my desk with my Mac Pro or MacBook Pro or or Mac Mini or whatever. And it it just takes us into the heart of being an, in the Apple ecosystem as a user is that you're you're implicitly explicitly really putting your faith in apple because nobody else can can do it if you're all in on ios you can't buy a tablet or a phone from another company right you can't you can make a hackintosh so that you know the mac is a little different where you can unofficially create a hackintosh uh in a way that you can't even do as a as a hobbyist on on a phone but for the most part, if you're in the Mac ecosystem, you're buying Apple hardware, and that gets to, especially on laptops, it gets to the whole debate we've been having over the couple, last couple of years with the last you know, modern revisions of the entire MacBook lineup from the you know, entry level to the pro models and the right. decisions they've made on ports and thickness and, of course, keyboards, et cetera. You know, it, we're all in on this, and if their keyboards don't work right, you know, you're getting a keyboard that doesn't work right because that's your only choice. Um, yeah, it's great, and and the bigger problem by far was the apparent. Hey, they don't really have works work workstation class hardware anymore. So if you want to do workstation class work on the Mac, you're kind of out of luck. And they've solved it now. They've got the iMac Pro and the Mac Pro, and they're truly truly scaled to phenomenal distances of technical. I mean, 1.5 terabytes of RAM is crazy. I mean, that's like, as far as I can tell, that's going to cost at least like $40,000 for yeah, the maybe, RAM. Maybe, maybe more. You may be, you know, I'm sure there will be a six-figure configuration of this thing, I, right? Yeah, I honestly think that you might be able to get like a $100,000 Mac Pro with if you max out all of the cores and all the RAM and, and the SSD storage. It's insane. But it's great that that exists because there's some people who are like, yeah, sign me up. I need that. You know, I, I, I actually have work that, that, that would justify it. Um, but we're yeah, still, a lot of us want it. A lot of us want it. But, Very few of us need it. Right. It's the truth of it. But, but we're, to me, the hole that is left in the lineup is so glaring at this 5k standalone display yeah. and nobody else is going to make it. There's just no way. I mean, LG sort of had it and got out of the business. So who yeah, else makes is me left? wonder if, if that is because Apple used them as a partner. And then remember they had the thing where like they were blocking the Wi-Fi, and it wasn't all, all of these bad yeah, things about yeah, it that they I had to fix. That, yeah. I wonder if when Apple decided, cause that was at that event where, where I was told, uh, and and I think Neelay was told, Apple is like out of the display business. Yeah. And that's why we're showing you this LG display, because we're not going to make displays anymore. I wonder if LG's abandonment of that market is 
a sign that they know that Apple is going to do that product and they don't need to work with Apple anymore. Apple doesn't need them anymore to, or they, to soldier on or, with that product. Or, or they just need them as a component maker. Give us the panel, right? Right, right. right. Well, we're going to brand it as Apple and put right. our secret sauce on it and improve the profit margin right. on it and that'll be great and we're just going to keep buying the panels from you. Right. Maybe that's it. I, I actually, this is why I'm kind of hopeful that it'll happen is it's a product that needs to exist. Somebody's got to make it and the fact that LG is not making it feels a little like a timing thing where we're in transition to a new product and maybe that will be an actual apple labeled product that'd make john syracuse very happy yeah it definitely would (laughs) (laughs) and 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 really like every developer who who not just mac pro people but anybody who's got an imac or an imac pro or a macbook pro or uh, I'll say it again, that Mac Mini actually yep. scales pretty well. You can you can get a pretty powerful Mac Mini, yep. but then what do you attach it to? Right, exactly. Right. What do you what do you what do you buy? Tell me what tell me what to buy, <laughs> Phil Schiller. Tell me what yeah. monitor to yeah. hook this Mac Mini up to. It's it, it, absolutely it is really you know just just shut up and and take my money yeah. is where we are with it. Uh, and I'll just say this too. I, I mean, I didn't sit in front of the Pro Display XDR for an extended period of time. It was all in the hands on areas and and brief demos and stuff. But a thousand nits is super bright. I mean, like, yeah. you know, like I think the IMAX uh, are capped at 500 nits. So about half the, ma- you know, maximum brightness on a 5K. The maximum brightness on an iMac is just fine <laughs> for normal use. Like if you're writing code or reading or whatever, it's like, it, it's not in the least bit dull or dim. It's just that a thousand is insanely bright. It is like put sunscreen on your face bright. Yeah, it it is. It is hilarious just how bright that monitor is and that was that was one of the things that came through in that uh, sort of dim room with all the different monitors is is this is not like i don't even run my imac at full brightness no i (laughs) don't either i'm looking at it right now and it's like yeah i don't even have this on full brightness it's bright enough anyway i hopefully fingers crossed apple knows what they're doing and they're just saving a little bit of ammunition to have uh something nice to announce in the fall and if not uh hopefully the They'll listen to the show and <laughs> get started, or at least at least turn the iMac uh, at least let a regular iMac be a standalone display, and just let people buy it and let the the computer part of it go to waste and just use it as a display. It it's almost baffling that that you, that this product doesn't exist. Yep. How many times did you get asked? I got asked, uh, you know, like. You know, like friends and family, like family people who know, oh, you go out to California every June for this Apple thing. And, they, you know, they don't read my website. They just know vaguely what I do. And the one thing they wanted to talk about was the $1,000 monitor arm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get I didn't get much. I mean, so here for me, it was my son said, oh, they made that they made that um, stand that cost a thousand dollars because obviously he saw a YouTuber who was making jokes about it. And I was like, yeah, well, it's complicated and it's not for. But I'm like, yeah, I mean, and that to me is the sign that you just made a major PR fumble is that nobody remembers anything but this this thing that you did that you totally didn't need to do. But that's that's how it is. So, yeah, for me, it was not my relatives so much as my uh, as my son, who's on this totally other because because Julian and Jonas are about the same age and they they obviously get all of their information from YouTube all of it 100 percent of his information about the world comes from YouTube did you see the side by side of the matte finish I I know they're not calling it matte they're calling it the nano nano etched nano etched whatever but let's just say matte and glossy did you get to see them side by side I did (laughs) the matte is so nice 
I just I actually just wrote a piece that I turned in this morning for Tom's guide because I'm writing about right. iPhones over there every other week or something like that. And um, for Phil Michaels, my old pal from MacWorld, who's at Tom's guide now. And uh, this piece was like, what hardware? Now that now that iPhone rumors go out to 2020, yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous, the fall of 2020, right? Um, what hardware? Where where should Apple steer in terms of like hardware innovation? What are the places that it feels like there's room for them to push? And one of the things I wrote was, you know, still a lot of glare on these on these iPhone and iPad screens, and I wonder like. This this nano edge co- stuff. I like. I get that you're shooting a laser to make little things in glass, and I get that it's not a touch screen, and it doesn't have to have the uh, you know kind of unbreakability that Gorilla Glass needs. And yet, part of me is like, can you talk to Corning about the lasers <laughs> for the laser etched glass? Because I would really love it if my iPad and my iPhone were not glary like they are. That and would be really nice. When you, I would, I I would like it on my MacBook too. Especially yeah. MacBook. Oh, for sure. I feel like with the, sure. with the handheld ones, you can at least tilt them a little. Whereas the MacBook, you sort of prop it up on whatever table you're in front of, and the angle sort of defines itself. You don't really... Right. I, and ever ever since Apple put that single pane of glass in front of the display on the MacBook, uh, the glare has been pretty, you know, it's way more severe than it used to be. So, yeah, I, that's that's one of these things that I have in the back of my mind. Again, it's like I'm not going to buy the $6,000 monitor, but that technology, and I get that it added $1,000 to the price of the monitor, <laughs> but that technology is really interesting because uh, it's like, you know, who are they working with on the glass? What is this process? And does it have applications elsewhere in the product line? Like, wouldn't it be great if you could get maybe yeah. not for a thousand dollars, but you could get a true matte uh, MacBook screen that was not and may- just a coating? And maybe it's like a three hundred dollar upgrade, you know? Right, right. You know, right. given the size of a, a MacBook screen to the size of the uh, Pro Display XDR screen, I, I would pay three hundred dollars in an instant heartbeat for that just for that finish because it is so nice it is it is truly remarkable and it is by definition unphotographable there is no way that you can it's by definition you can't really show the difference other than seeing it in person side by side and yeah the the way i describe it is sort of like if you stand off axis from it you can see people's faces reflected in the in the the non-glare one or in the glare one and in the non-glare one, it's like they're vampires. They're just gone. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> there's no reflection on that screen. And that, that was what did it for me. Yeah. There there was some weird lighting. They they held a bunch of the briefings. I'm sure you were at some of them in the Marriott Hotel adjacent to the convention yep. center. And those sure. the, the meeting rooms that they have there have very strange lighting, uh, sort of like a, a, an 80s futuristic lighting on <laughs> the ceiling, um, but with these very... Uh, long and prominent lighting fixtures in a square pattern on the roof and right. on the ceiling. I mean, and you, that to me was the test. It was like on the glary one, on the regular one, you could easily see those white lines of the lights. And then you'd go right next to the next one and you'd expect to see it continue right across from the one display to the other. And it just disappeared. It wasn't like, Oh, there's less glare. There was none, none at all. Unbelievable. Uh, so yep. you think of it as a thousand dollar finish and you think, wow, that's pretty expensive. But when you think of it as going from 6,000 to 7,000 and it's only a 16% increase, you're like, oh, for 16% more, I would def I would get that in a heartbeat. 
I almost, yeah. it all, it's so much nicer that it almost makes me wonder why they even offer the one without it. Like, why not just say, here it is, It everyone has the matte finish and it's $7,000. I had that same thought because it goes back to the stand, too. It's right. like, look, everybody's going to get the stand all, and the and <laughs> you make a mounting option. Just roll in the price of the stand, right. roll in the price of the of the mat, right. it's and eight, just say yeah, it's, it's eight, an $8,000 It's $8,000. It's the best display anybody's ever made in the world. And in small print, oh, if you want to save $1,000, you can omit the stand. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anything else jump out at you? I know we've been going on for a while. We always go long uh, when you're on. I mean, for me, for me, the iPad, just iPad yeah, OS, not just the name, that. which is like it's interesting too because it is a marketing name. You you brought this up at the talk show with right. with Craig and Jaws. Like, is a, a name is always marketing. Like, you could argue that like Watch OS is kind of iOS, TV OS is kind of iOS, but what they've decided to do is brand them based on the device because the idea there is it's the device that runs the object and ipad os is really just sort of saying you know we have features here at apple that we build for ipad users and you use them as an ipad user and i, I like that i also feel it gives them less place to hide next year mm -hmm. if they try to withhold ipad features every other year like they've done the past yeah few years that like now we're going to be like well what about ipad os and and, and there's a question there and like you know even like Tim Cook had to do a few slides about tvOS at the keynote, yeah. right? Like he had to. It was obligatory because tvOS is a product in their lineup. It, they have to talk about it. it. But it you was telling that it. it was the only platform where he didn't call anybody else out. Like he went through it so uh, yep. fast that instead of calling, you know, Eddie Q or somebody to come up and talk about it, Tim was like, "I'll do this myself." And then yeah, we'll my feeling was like, "Hey, you're the Apple, or you're the uh, tvOS product manager." And it's like, "Well, I got good news for you. Tim Cook is going to read your slides personally." <laughs> But the bad news is that you're not important enough to have somebody else come out. You you will be sitting in the audience right. for this presentation. But yeah, I, I just think as an iPad user, I, I essentially I'm a Mac user at my desk and I am an iPad user when I'm not at my desk. I don't really use a MacBook. My family has them. I have an old MacBook Air that I, I use occasionally, but I basically use an iPad when I'm traveling or even just sort of out in the house or in the backyard or whatever. And so for me, this is that year where we got lots of good iPad features, which is great. Now, I hope I hope now that the name is out there, we continue to get them every year. But there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's a, you know, it's a work in progress. We'll see what they do in the in the betas. The complication of making multi-window iPad apps is, I mean, that, that's such a hard thing to get right. And parts of it work like magic and other parts of it are a little bit baffling yes i mean I you agree. know you brought up like you tap on the notes app and it shows you it's expose and it shows you all of your open windows for notes that's great but if you alt or uh, you know command tab into notes it just kind of goes to one of them yeah and which one is it and that may just be a bug they may fix that but it, it's one of those cases where like it's still trying to navigate like what's a window how is it like an app how is it not like an app but i'll tell you it is uh, you know, there's a whole litany of things that's just like computers have had for so long and that for some reason, technical or political, the iPad has refused that with this release, they're like, yeah, OK, you can you can plug in USB drives. You can mount SMB servers. You can open multiple windows. Uh, you can open multiple documents in an app so you can have two word documents open side by side if you want. We'll let you do that. Well, that's really that's awful nice of you yeah. since I've had that on my Mac for 25, 30 years that we finally get that or even longer we finally get that on the ipad but i'm glad they're there right like it was it was a joke that they hadn't been there already but at least they're there now 
command tab is interesting. And, you know, let's give credit to Microsoft for inventing command tab back in the day. You know, it's, for it's sure. certainly something that the, the Apple, you know, took from Windows and added to the Mac. Uh, I was talking about it at, at WWDC with some people. We were trying to remember what the names of the utilities were. But, like, before Apple officially supported command tab on the Mac, there were a couple of popular third-party Mac utilities that, that offered it. Um, it, it's a great idea. It, I don't know, you know, it, it's so innate to my muscle memory that I kind of can't remember not having it, but I do remember, I know that for years I used a Mac without it and it works great in the Mac interface. It just is per, you know, you command tab, it shows a list of all your running apps. When you select one, all of the windows for that app come forward, but maintain their relative indexes to each other. Uh, it, it does what you expect. It is, it, it's just part of my brain, but on the iPad to me, it's never sat right. At least since it's like, I, I don't know when they first supported it. Maybe they've had it all along. Cause remember they had a keyboard with the original, uh, yeah, I think it's been there for I think a long time have, and maybe forever. Yeah. It, it only to me on the iPad works when you're using the iPad in the iPhone sense of each app gets the whole screen. And once you go split screen on iPad, the command tab interface to me completely breaks down. It, it's a, it's a mismatch of UI metaphors. And the fact that you can't command tab to some places is just bizarre. Right, like, yeah, and it's been that way. Where there's also like apps that um, I don't know if this is true in 13, but in iOS 12, um, there depending on how an app gets open, like if an app gets opened by another app, it doesn't show up yeah. in the command tab switcher. Which is like, what is that about? But that's and I always view that as a bug, but yeah. it's a really bad, weird bug. And now I think this is the question: is shouldn't should the command tab switcher uh, trigger? an expose kind of thing. I think it should. Multiple windows open. I think that whether it should be the expose that you get as you drag up from the bottom of the iPad screen or whether they redo the expose so that there can be one unified switching interface. I, on, I feel very strongly that the single thing that iPad OS needs the most is a unification of command tab switching versus swipe up switching. Because when you swipe up, everything makes visual sense. You can see, Oh, I have notes paired with messages here in a space and I have notes, a different note, but the same app notes paired with Safari over here. That's the one I want and I can tap it and it brings, it comes forward. Whereas when you do the command tab thing and you go to notes and it doesn't bring up the one you want and there's no other option, it it just feels broken. I feel like that that's a hole in the interface that they, they should fix. But, but overall, I think that the, the way that they've expanded the multi-panel interface for iPadOS is really, really clever. And I really think it's, especially I think for people who, like you, who that's your primary port or your only portable machine, being able to do two up is to me magical. I brought that up at my talk show, but two is the magic number where it's like you have old and new left and right. And if you can look at two notes at the same time or two uh, word documents or Google documents using the iPad desktop browsing or whatever, sure. Uh, two up is, is magical. And being able to do that is, is a huge, 
huge winner. And then Slide Over, which was really just kind of like a, a remnant of the original concept. And it was always a little bit weird and kind of hard to get rid of and hard to ma- manage. Yeah. And it's actually gone to be what they've done with that is turn it into an iPhone, basically, which is brilliant. So yeah. the now it's going to be much more useful because now the Slide Over thing, you know, you, you sort of slide it out and it's a floating window above your content, but you can swipe on the bottom like yep. you can on the bottom of an iPhone 10 and it'll just go b- through all of your different apps and windows that are there or you can swipe up and get a little multitasking app switcher just for slide over and so now slide over is no longer this kind of like app in a box off on the side it's now like a access quick access to any app you want for a moment which like i feel like it's way more powerful a concept now than it was before and i actually think i will use it in a way that i just never bothered with with the old one because now it's just so easy to just get at anything for a moment do what you need to and then flip it away and that's uh that's a good concept i like that i yeah and i i do this i'll be, i wonder if you do too but i'll do this where i'm working on my ipad and sometimes even my mac too but i'll take out my phone and do something on my phone literally my actual phone just because i know it's brief and i know that like some of the continuity features are so great that i can count on it like let's say i know that i saw a tweet from jason snell and I, he had a link that I definitely want to get on my Mac somehow. I'll just go to my phone and there it is because I left TweetBot there and I can copy it and copy it from my phone and then just switch to my Mac and paste and continuity will make, you know, give me the thing I just copied on the other device. I feel like you can use slide over like that now. Like it's sort of like having a, like you said, like having an iPhone on your iPad screen just for like a one-off, you know, get this thing and then get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, and you can if it's not the app. The, the big frustration before was like if it's not the app that you want, then it's this whole thing where you're going through and like trying to find what app you want to drop there. And now you just flip through them until right. you find the thing you want, and then grab it and then flip it away, and that's it. It's uh, I, I think it's a good. Uh, I, I'm impressed with how they really rethought the slide over thing. It's like, what do we do with slide over to make it better? And the answer was, we're going to take. And this may not have been an accident. It may have been part of the big picture even last year. But whoever said. Oh, our method of navigating, you know, in a, a, a t- uh, iPhone 10 is the same method we should use for slide over. It's like, yes, good job. Whoever thought of that, because it's exactly right. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, but I kind of feel like it's not, it's, it's a little bit more by design. I really think that the, the sort of rethinking that they went into for the iPhone 10, uh, let's get rid of the home button and, and make everybody use a gestural thing. Uh, I think that was thought through to how would this grow to bigger devices or to something like, uh, sure, the iPad is a bigger device, but what if you have an iPhone-style window on that bigger device? Right. Yeah, it does feel like they... Uh, you know, you do, you make some decisions because of expediency and you have to get there. And then at some point you need to revisit and say, can we coordinate all this? So it makes sense in yeah. a bunch of different places. And that's what they did. Yeah. And the other area, and, and it's funny that you brought that up. Cause I was thinking about, it. it was one of my things I thought about at WWDC when I saw this interface was the other thing that really makes a lot of sense on the iPad and not on the iPhone is, um, that only having one home button really hurt the iPad with 
trying to have two apps on the screen at a time, right? Because what is what is the home button controlling? The left one, the right one, who knows? Now both of them have a little home switcher that you can that you can trigger. It feels way more natural. If 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 you're thinking, hey, I should be able to have two apps on screen, two different apps, or maybe the two instances of the same app on screen at a time, shouldn't they both have a home button? And because now they now they can. And it didn't really make sense before. Right. Uh, anything else? What else are you uh, thinking about? I, from I don't WWDC? know. That was that for me. That was the that was the the big the biggest news was just uh, beyond the Catalyst SwiftUI stuff and the Mac Pro was just that the iPad got some love, which I am always happy to see. I can plug in. You know what I did this morning, John, for the very first time? I plugged a USB C thumb drive into my iPad, and it just <laughs> uh, showed up in the Files app. I should not be as happy about that as I am. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I talked about that with uh, the guys at my show, with Craig and Jaws, and I feel like Craig kind of joked his way out of that. I forget exactly what he said, but it's a bigger technical underpinning, and I think I'm almost convinced it's tied to the Mac change where kernel extensions now can be run in user space instead of in the kernel memory space. Like, hmm. I think that that's part of what they're doing on the iPad, where the USB stack that that allows these drives to run is not running in kernel space. It's a brand new USB stack. I, I feel like maybe that was too technical and they didn't want to sp- spill the beans on it. He did uh, mention security issues. And whenever right. I've written about it, people have said, well, you could have a bad USB stick. And my thought has always been, well, I know, but I need to do my work, right. too. I will say this, though, and it, it it's a, a thing to watch for on the Mac side, is... You know, now on iOS, you can plug in a USB drive and use it, and then you just unplug it when you're done. It's right. Like, that needs to happen on the Mac. It is, how many times do I mount something on my Mac, and then I unmount it, and it goes away in the finder, and then I unplug it, and it and says, no, I wasn't done. Yeah. Like, why do I have to do that? Right. Come on. Right. I, I That feels old. So I'm ready. I'm ready for the moment where I can just unplug the device and it does the system does the right thing. Yeah. That would be great. But the iPad does that now. So that's that's great. I'm very glad that they did it. I get and this is a recurring theme. A lot of people are like, "Oh, why is Apple so slow with some of these features?" When going back to that thing about everything's about privacy and security. Like some of these things they're like, "Well, if we're going to implement it, we need to do it right." which means we need to do it securely and we need to invent a whole new thing in order to have this thing work securely. And that's, I think, why some of these features just don't happen is because um, it's not that they couldn't mount USB in files. It's because they were concerned about that as an attack vector, probably already given that you could attach um, USB devices for importing of videos and and photos into the Photos app. And we're like, it's on our list is to do that in a more secure way. And then we can roll it into files. And it would not surprise me at all if that's exactly what what happened this year. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. And I feel like they didn't want to talk about it because they just don't, they don't want to make excuses for themselves. And so right. they didn't really but want to go like into to be detail. mysterious, right? right? It's like, well, you'll get it when we're ready. And, uh, and <laughs> it, that's it. It is true. It is it, it is a very funny thing to be very excited about, but just plugging a USB drive into your... I know. <laughs> I feel bad. And I, I mounted my, uh, my my Mac Mini as an SMB server in files, and I was excited about that, too. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? These are, I just, just... These are basic things. But when you go without water for enough <laughs> days, you are desperate for water. So there we are. Jason Snell, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to emphasize again, uh, I think you guys even have another episode out. I think Upgrade 250 is 
is already out. Yeah, but up, yeah. Upgrade 249 is the one where you interview uh, Wiley Hodges and Josh Schaffer, uh, which I, 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 I honestly, I don't mince words here, must listen interview in terms of understanding the scope of Swift UI. It, it, it's just tremendous. Well, thank you. Uh, you've got at least 60 other podcasts you do every week. <laughs> That's pretty much, pretty uh, much true. The incomparable. Uh, where I've been on a couple times, we talked about 2001, yeah. sometime in the last year. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got and we and we got a couple others in there with you on them, which which are nice. We're gonna have to do that again sometime. Uh, but that's yeah, that's the pop culture thing. And uh, actually, one I wanted to mention is I do a podcast at the end of every week with TV with it's called TV Talk Machine. It's with Tim Goodman, who is the TV critic at the Hollywood Reporter, and we spend a lot of time talking about not just like new TV shows, but we do spend a lot of time talking about kind of the weird landscape of the television industry now, mostly disrupted by technology companies like Apple and the advent of streaming services like Netflix and Prime Video, and that's a fun a uh, fun podcast if you care about sort of like TV and the future of entertainment. We, and where, we spend a lot of time talking Where about. do people go to get this to get this podcast? Uh, go to theincomparable.com um, and you can see a list of all the podcasts and, and The Incomparable is there and TV Talk Machine is there. TV and, Talk uh, Machine. And then Relay FM for... Uh, for for download or for, sorry for upgrade and download they're both there's a lot of podcasts is what I'm saying <laughs> and sixcolors.com all the things I do John are linked to from six colors whether it's a podcast or right. a column at, at MacWorld or Tom's Guide or the stuff that I just write on the site that's the place to find me sixcolors.com yeah. so why don't we just go to six colors and you can yeah. sp- and I, as I always like to mention you can spell colors however you want. <laughs> within reason but i did i did register <laughs> i did res- register it with the u for our friends who are not in the u.s you can spell it correctly however you want <laughs> yes <laughs> anyway jason thank you very much this is great uh it's i'm it- always happy to be on uh <laughs> and so thanks for having me on all right till next time <laughs>